Welcome to This Week in Photo. Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. Find over 20 million stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and video clips. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code TWIP10. This week on TWIP, Sony becomes the largest shareholder in Olympus, Kodak leaves the consumer printing market, a new app that allows you to take just one photograph ever, IKEA Saudi Arabia photoshops women out of its catalog, and an interview with Michael Willem. It's Wednesday, October 3rd, 2012, and this is TWIP. And welcome back to another episode of TWIP. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today on the show, we're going to be diving into some pretty interesting stories. The first of which is Sony has become the largest shareholder in Olympus. Next up is Kodak. They are throwing their hat in the ring, or taking their hat out of the ring, actually, in the printing business. So, uh, continuing the the, uh, the to see Kodak leave photography, it looks like. Also, number three, we're going to be talking about this new application, an app that lets you that limits you to just one photograph ever. You just take one, you buy, buy the app, take a picture with it, and you're done. So we're going to talk about it. Some people like it. Some people don't like it. We're going to go into that. And then number four, IKEA of Saudi Arabia has been Photoshopping women from their catalog. So we want to talk about that. IKEA, We, if you remember before, we talked about those guys actually uh, doing computer-generated imagery in their catalog. So I'm, I'm, I, I want to talk about this. This is, uh, this is really, really interesting. Plus, we got an interview with photographer and educator Michael Willems. So that was a really interesting discussion I had with him. You'll enjoy that, I'm sure. And joining me to discuss these topics and more are Valerie Jardin, Dan Ablan, and Jeffrey Totaro. Hey, guys. How you, how you doing? Hey, Frederick. Hi, everyone. Hello. All right. This is going to be a good show. Let's, uh, let's get caught up with you guys. First off, Jeffrey, I don't think you've been on the show in quite a while. What have you been up to? What's going on in the world of architectural photography? No, I'm, I'm happy to be back. I haven't been on for a while. Uh, it's been a, been a pretty busy year so far, which, you know, thank goodness for that. And I've uh, been traveling around a little bit, did a few jobs in the Chicago area earlier in the year. And uh, so, yeah, work, work's been good. And just a few weeks ago, we, we sorted out dates for our uh, Palm Beach workshop, the architectural photography workshop down at the Palm Beach Photographic Center. And uh, that's going to be in February. I think the dates are the 19th to the 23rd. It's a five-day five day program, and um, it's fun. We've we've had people from last last uh, last year. We had somebody from Canada. We had someone from the Bahamas year before that. Uh, someone from Trinidad and Tobago who's actually coming back this year. So it's fun. We get a, a wide range of people. So it's and what do you, what do you cover in the workshop? Is it all about just architecture and how to how to light and all that good yeah, stuff? Yeah, it's um we generally split it up in half a day in a classroom. We're talking about the the digital production side of things or even the business side of things. And then half a day, usually out shooting at a location, um, could be a church, could be, um, any, any number of locations we found in the past, like restaurants and things. And we're, we'll, I tend to make it more of a demonstration workshop than a really participatory workshop for people to shoot just because it's, it's a very technical, um, 
very technical topic. So there's a lot to discuss, and the thought process I think is uh, is what a lot of people get out of it is you know how, how I decide which what kind of lighting, what's what the composition is going to be. So, uh, but I think I think most, most people tend to enjoy it, and um, I, I really like doing it. It's a lot of fun to do. So now, did I did it. I hear you say you were in Chicago? Yeah, we're doing. Um, I was doing a few um, healthcare projects for one of my one of my clients that does a lot of. I know someone else who's based out of the Chicago area. I don't know who is it. Uh, Dan, I, I, it's Dan, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm actually yes. based in Philadelphia, but I traveled out there for for a few jobs recently. Yeah, well, you guys, you guys, getting come visit. Yeah, that'd be great. Great to meet up. All right, cool. Well, the, the other voice that we just talked to is Dan Ablin. So, Dan, welcome back. What have you been up to? What's going on in your world? Oh, all kinds of good stuff. Just uh, doing some 3D animations. Uh, we just finished a 3D training video for lynda.com, which will be up soon. Um, I got a Super Monday Photoshop workshop for the Professional Photographers of America we're hosting here mm. at the studio next week. Nice. And uh, then working on some new Photoshop training for 3dgarage.com, which hopefully will be out in about a month. Well, maybe you'll get a gig with Ikea. I hear they're uh, <laughs> hey, you know what? 3D I'm artists. <laughs> Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> You'd be set for life. You'd just get rid of all your other clients, right? A total just... sellout. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Awesome. So 3D Garage and um, and PPA, right? Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. How's the Lynda.com stuff going? Good, good. Their catalog uh, is gigantic. It's just amazing. Every time yeah, I look at it, I got an email from them today, which, you know, as designed, it led me into the site to go exploring again. So I'm exploring it. They got everything in there, even stuff on how to use Google Docs and Google Drive and stuff. I, was there. I was there the day they were doing that one, actually, which I was like, Google, you're doing Google Docs. <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, yeah, everything you can think of. My stuff's all 3D right now. Um, it is very difficult to move into the photography end of things because it's so saturated. Yeah. Um, good thing is because the first couple of ones we did, which I did out there in uh, California with them, um, went pretty well. So now I just do them here in our studio and I send out the videos. So, um, so the new one actually went out the door today, as a matter of fact. And then we're doing one for um, – well, I shouldn't say, but there's something else coming that Linda hasn't done yet. So I, I pitched it and we're – we're going to be working on it uh, for some fluid simulation type stuff. All right. Well, very cool. All right. Well, welcome back. And Thank la- you. last but not least is Miss Valerie Jardin. Hey, Valerie. What's going on? Hi, Frederick. Good accent. Oh, well, I've been um, practicing. I've had several episodes to practice Valerie's last name <laughs> so I don't butcher it too much. I'm still butchering it. I know. She's just being no, polite. But <laughs> Valerie Jardin. That was really good. Um, well, I'm actually, by the time this is uh, on iTunes, I'll probably be on the plane. I'm leaving for Paris to teach my week-long photo workshop, which starts on Sunday. And uh, it's exciting. I have a fun group coming from Australia, from the UK, from the United States. So some of them are already there. And um, so that's, that's fun. Any and, any, uh, any twit people in there, in that group? Um, I have some uh, in this group, yes, actually. I believe two twit listeners. who signed up um, early summer. Good. And I have registration from TWIP listeners for the 2013 workshops. Uh, So it's fun. Yeah. So I have workshops going in May and October next year. And... uh, you're and just some busy. Limit- this is Valerie. Just admit it. This is just your excuse to get back to Paris, right? Come on. Well, it's a lot of work because I take care of the accommodations, the the finding gourmet dinners for a group every night, Ooh, and oh uh, so it's actually I'm the tour operator besides teaching the workshop. So um, it's it's a lot of detail 
um, to take care of. So, And I also have limited space for accompanying non-photographers, which has been popular. It's only limited space in each uh, workshop. So people who don't want to travel alone, you know, but they're photographers, but their spouse or their significant other mm -hmm. is not a photographer, I, I can offer accommodations and they can join the groups for the dinners. Oh, that's um, cool. That's new. But, I haven't heard yeah. of that before. That's a great feature. Yeah. So it's, it's actually, yeah, not very many people offer that. It's added work for me, but it's, there are probably people who signed up who would not have come on a workshop by themselves in Paris, you know, and, and their spouse, you know, they can go shopping or they can go to museums, you know, while they're uh, on the photo walks and they still have, you know, half days to be with yeah, them. It's, it's not explore. a tough sell to say, hey, honey, it's why don't you nice. come with me to Paris? Yeah. Yeah. I like so it. cool. Well, congratulations on that. Thanks. Cool. All right. Well, guys, thanks. Thanks all of you for coming on. This is good. I think this is going to be a really good show. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, let's just dive right into it. So no, the first story that we're going to talk about is Sony. Um, they've become the largest shareholder in Olympus. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means. So basically, let me just read what we have here in our notes here. It says, a deal has been reached um, that will see Sony become the largest shareholder in Olympus, owning close to 12% of the company's shares after pouring $650 million into the company. The deal comes just a few weeks after Olympus, and some of its executives plead guilty to covering up a billion dollars in losses over a decade. So as part of the deal, Shot. Olympus will be providing Sony with glass lenses and Sony will be providing Olympus with sensors. So let's talk about this. I mean, you know, Jeffrey, I'm going to throw it to you first. Mm -hmm. on this. So after hearing all that, what, what, what comes to your mind first? Well, actually, I, I got a bit of an inside look at the operation at Olympus a few years ago. I photographed their, um, their new corporate headquarters and, mm. uh, Centerville, Pennsylvania, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was very interesting to see. And what I was most struck by was how huge their, and it mentions in the, uh, the webpage here, their endoscope market is, the mm -hmm. medical mm -hmm. uh, the medical side of their market is, is enormous. And that uh, this particular location I was in uh, serviced a lot of that equipment that came in. And, uh, but I, I think we'll probably see a lot of this sort of consolidation between manufacturers um, than we have in the past because everyone's got their strengths and I think they'll, they try and consolidate and, and, and work off each other's strengths. And I know Fuji uses currently some Zeiss lenses on their cameras and, you know, you can't get much better than that in terms of brand recognition. Yeah. And I, I do wonder if Olympus will uh, perhaps insist that they use only Olympus lenses and, and don't let them branch out because, you know, one thing, if you don't make the greatest lenses is that you can then, you can then offer lenses from those who do. So I wonder if, if in some case they may be limited now to using only Olympus lenses. So I wonder what the, uh, what the arrangement will be in, in that regard. But I think also it, it probably helps Olympus a little bit too in their, like you mentioned, the, um, their recent uh, financial troubles and mm -hmm. the, the cover up that they had and, and all that. So maybe it'll help smooth that over uh, and maybe help them uh, continue in the photography market. Right. You know, we get, we get slammed a lot on this week in photo for not talking about, Sony particularly, there's a lot of Sony shooters out there that say we do them, uh, we don't do them enough credit by talking about the amazing bodies and lenses and technology that Sony has, and we're we're biased towards Canon and Nikon because that's what we shoot, right? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. or most of us uh, shoot uh, Canon and Nikon. So, 
what I want to throw, Valerie, I want to put this one, this question to you. So, with this sort of joining forces of Sony and Olympus, does this mean that Sony will will you know, will become even more powerful in this space? And you know, if so, what does that mean? You know, because a lot of people say. Yeah, I know Sony's awesome. They're great. I hear really good things about their their hardware and glass and all that. But I just have too much money invested in Canon and Icon glass or whatever, and I can't make the move. Yeah, well, that's true. I I don't think I could afford to make a move unless I got you know a sponsor like mm-hmm. Sony mm-hmm. <laughs> offering me all free stuff. Then I'd hint, consider hint. it. But <laughs> no, I I I really like Canon, but I'm not so much into brand. I really don't don't care it works for me that's mm-hmm. about it yeah. uh, i happened to start with canon i could have started with nikon you know yeah. um but i don't know is i mean sony's money going to help olympus innovate or you know i mean sony it could be better for olympus than yeah. for sony i don't yeah. know I, well I'm, yeah i think so yeah I was, yeah olympus is in well is in if, trouble or yeah dire straits if you believe everything you read you know um and it, it looks like sony has done kind of reminds me of when um apple was was struggling and about to die i don't know what was that like 10 1997 years ago? yeah was it 97 yeah seven dollars share and steve jobs was uh you know was on the stage at Macworld and gave that big speech and then you know whose face showed up on the big screen behind him bill gates saying hey we're lending them what was it 10 or 100 million dollars or some some amount of money which is like pennies compared to what <laughs> what apple is worth today and microsoft had to invest in apple to keep them alive and then you look forward to today apple is worth more than google and microsoft and any other company on the planet right now so yeah. it's amazing how how the tables turn dan what do, what do you think about this what's what what is what do you make of this deal well, I, th- I think it'll help Sony for one. I mean, Olympus back in the film days was a good brand. I did not shoot it. I shot Canon back then. But, um, you know, from what I've read, Olympus, which I did not know, um, is big in the medical and, you know, doing endoscopies and stuff and the lenses and stuff like that. So I think Sony will get into that space um, because they're buying in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, often when these companies merge, it just they, they just bring their two assets together and, and create something stronger. So... Um, it's hard where's, to see. So where's the opening, though? What are we missing in the market? Because, you know, we, like, it, we as consumers, as again, to reference Steve Jobs, you, you know, he says we don't know what we – he said we don't know what it is that we need or want, right? Mm-hmm. So in the photography space, what are we not seeing that we need? What's the next, the next level that a, that a joined Sony Olympus entity could give us and redefine the market? That's hard to say. I mean, you know, better, more accurate lenses. You know, I don't know how much farther they can go with chips. I'm sure it's going to keep going when you look at the the new, you know, the D800, the D600 now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canon's got theirs. Uh, was the 60D. You know, when, yeah. when does it stop? I mean, how big can these? But is, is the be? future mm-hmm. is the future mirrorless? Maybe that's the next thing. I, it might be. I it might be. Too. You think so, oh, Valerie? Yeah, that's so much talk about it you know starting to I it think must it's be true stick. if everybody's talking yeah. about it. <laughs> well i but think what's full what, frame what compact too is kind of cool it's what was cool. that say that again the full frame compact yeah that's what yeah these new cameras are sure yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. is that is it so is that the next logical step for for just hardware on these because those are cheaper i mean and if, if someone asks me what camp because you get we all get that question all the time from non-photographers like hey you're a photographer what camera should I buy, right? And my my standard answer has been, well, how much do you have to spend? Right. And then I ask them, 
what are you trying to shoot? You know, and then I can kind of give them a, you know, a somewhat knowledgeable recommendation. But lately it's been, if you are, it's either just use your iPhone, dude, or, (laughs) or, uh, get a micro four thirds mirrorless camera and that'll, you'll have one foot in both worlds. I don't know. I have a friend who travels a lot and he's quite a good photographer, uh, but he's tired of carrying around larger cameras and a Mm -hmm. bunch of lenses. And Mm -hmm. I have been recommending to him lately, uh, whenever I see him that he look at these, uh, mirrorless systems, partly because they are, it's two, twofold from what I say. They're, they're certainly smaller, the body's smaller, more compact. Uh, but the other thing that um, doesn't get talked about as much is when you take that, that mirror out, you're also taking the mirror box out, and that allows the lenses to be designed in a much better way, um, almost more similar to view camera lenses and more symmetrical design. And that allows for uh, actually somewhat lighter weight lenses and also less distortion, uh, sort of the optical distortion that a lot of software tries to correct these days. Yeah. So I think that that's another advantage. And um, They're quiet too, aren't they? Sure. Yeah, there's no mirror slapping around inside there. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I kind of like that sound, though. I mean, I don't know. I want my mirror. <laughs> well, they'll, they'll replace it with a digital sound. Yeah. Yeah, they might. But this is, I think this is why, though, that because of the mirrorless popularity lately, that you are seeing these new Canon and Nikon cameras with full frame in these small bodies. And from what I've seen, this new Nikon is a D4 in a tiny little body. Mm. And I'm kind of well, excited I don't know about, about that. Because well, I'm going to be traveling next year, and uh, I, you know, aside from the bulk of lenses and, and the big camera, um, you know, it's you, you want something you want to look like a tourist. You don't want to look, you know, yeah. have have this big Nikon camera on your neck. And uh, see, that's that's the that's the thing that I I was asking, um, you know, who was it? Will over at uh, Shoot Smarter or the Smarter Photographer? I was asking him about this. We were having a discussion about mirrorless cameras, and the question that I was positing was, okay. If you're a if you're a photographer, people people look at your the size you know, no pun or anything intended, but they look at the size of your camera and they yes. they equate right. that to this to how much skill you have or your capability, sure. right? So oh, you must be a good photographer. You got that giant brick hanging around your neck, right? Or you must be a good photographer. Your lenses are white, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> what happens when? You know, we go to this mirrorless route and everything shrinks down and you show up to a job like Jeffrey, you show up to a job Mm -hmm. that you've been contracted to do and you're getting, you know, five figures to show up there and you show up with a little tiny dinky camera that's smaller than the director of photography. You know what? what, what (laughs) There's there's something to be said for that in, in, in certain realms of photography. I mean, my clients look at me funny when I when I duct tape my iPhone to my tripod and uh, (laughs) they think that's a little strange. Um, But yeah, there is something to be said for that kind of thing. I think, um, you know, I, I shoot with medium format and uh, on technical cameras, so you know, a lot of people aren't familiar with those. So, and I do think that goes that goes some way towards that sort of professionalism. But it depends what you shoot. If you're shooting weddings, and you could be more agile with with um, you know a couple of smaller smaller cameras, then there's certainly um, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. And obviously, it's it's more much more the photographer than the equipment. Uh, and you can also be more stealthy. Like one, the camera I love to yeah. walk around with in cities and on vacation is the the Leica M9, and um, that certainly, unless you know what it is, doesn't really screen professional. Maybe this is a market for just in this transitional period because I feel like we're in this transition. Like in a couple of years, it'll be like okay, larger cameras are for old people, right? And so, <laughs> and all the cool photographers have the small mirrorless cameras, you know, and they'll become a liability to have the bigger camera. But in this interim period, maybe it's an opportunity for a startup to create kind of like 
professional looking housings like like underwater housings <laughs> for the small cameras that you could put them in you know they've got those ones for uh movie sets those those sound deadening mm-hmm. cases yeah you know, exactly so you can start in one of those mm-hmm. i don't know i don't know <laughs> valerie you don't care right i mean you're the photographer that's like who gives a crap about what i'm shooting with as long as my images look great right that's, well, that's true. But, uh, and, and like for wedding photographers, you know, showing up with a smaller, like a full frame compact camera, I mean, it's all about educating the, the client that, it, you know, they show their portfolio, their, their images are awesome. The client is not going to care what camera they right. show up with, you know. Uh, going on a commercial job with a small camera, yeah, they may, they may look at, that's funny, but just bring a giant um, pano head. It'll look impressive. <laughs> <laughs> but did you see like, the, the RX camera? one? I mean, the the images are pretty impressive. You know, the new Sony RX one. Granted, it's it's quite mm-hmm. expensive, but um, they're full frame compact. It looks um, great. Nice it camera. looks really good. What's the price on it? I didn't see what the price was. Oh, uh, I think it was like like right under three thousand or something. Really? Oh, wow. I hope I'm not saying. Yeah, twenty eight hundred. Mm, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. still something about the clarity of the, you know, the the medium format. And Jeffrey, I just got to look at your site. Beautiful stuff, by the way. Oh, thanks for um, me. just yeah. I, there's just something about it. Just just that clarity and mm-hmm. what are you what are you shooting with Jeffrey over there for those sites that we see on your site or the, the images um, we see on your site? I'm using the, the Phase One uh, PE45 Plus, and uh, I shoot that on uh, a couple of different. Uh, that Alpha name bodies. that name just sounds like I can't afford it. I mean, I. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't even need to look at the website. I just know I can't afford that camera. <laughs> well, actually, what's, what's funny is that that's a it's a it's a stellar digital back, and um, they they've come out with newer ones that are larger, larger uh, resolution and such, which are wonderful backs too. But the uh, the P forty five may go down as as certainly one of the better ones in in, in the history of the digital backs. What kind of resolution and, uh, are you getting out of that thing? It's a thirty nine megapixel um, oh, chip. It's a CCD chip. Oh. And um, they're, they're new, the new IQ series are really, really nice, and they're 40, 60, and 80 megapixels, uh, depending on which one you get. And they have a beautiful, almost like an iPhone interface right on the back of the back. Of the back. Which hopefully and, will uh, make it to DSLRs at some point in the future. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. You, you, can, you double tap it and zooms right into 100% to check focus and has a focus mask. Ah. Mm-hmm. So you turn on the focus mask, and it'll, it'll show you what areas are in sharp focus. Um, so it's very easy to use uh, untethered. I do a lot of my work tethered to the computer. Oh, but I needed that today. I was doing some yeah. some some you know just sort of not not Jeffrey Tataro style product photography, but some pr- some product photography for a small product that's going to be coming out soon. Mm-hmm. And I was doing it with my D seven hundred. And what you just said would have like saved me about I don't know maybe a couple of gallons of sweat. You know, trying to <laughs> trying to get the focus exactly right on the point where I wanted it to be focused, and you know trying to wrestle live view mode into submission to get it to actually focus in the right spot it was mm-hmm. wow yeah see you get what you pay for right you yeah get- well i find it's funny i can actually focus the medium format system way faster than um, i also have a, a complete you know 5d canon system mm-hmm. with those lenses and all um but i find those more difficult to focus because they're the tilt shift lenses are not autofocus, and yeah. so but the manual focusing on the Canon is not not as easy as you would like. Yeah. So it's funny I, I can just look at the distance scale on my lenses and know right where to put it and send focus while it's still in the case. I like to say. <laughs> All right. Well, we are we are completely in a rat hole now. Let's move on to story number two. <laughs> story number two is about our friends over at Kodak. Um, so mm. the saga continues. So Kodak, first of all, Kodak exited the camera business, which was a big shock to the world, and then the film business. 
you know, they took their Kodachrome away. So that's gone. And now they're getting out of the printer business. So they've announced uh, this week that they're going to stop producing printers and focus more on the commercial market. Um, So I guess making the printers like you'd find at your local drugstore and the photo department. So the cheaper printers. So, and they also announced that they're laying off 300 people uh, in it and they're still attempting to auction off some of their patents and what have they, what the results so far, they've only, the the sales of their patents so far have barely surpassed 20% of the value that they were hoping to get from them. So let's talk about Kodak. Uh, Dan, is there a divert? So what is next for Kodak? Is, are, should we just like stop reporting on Kodak? Is it over? Is, is the fat lady singing? What's up? Yeah, I mean, it kind of sounds like, I may feel bad for the people laid off, but you know, when reading this tonight, I was like, they have printers? You know, I mean, honestly, I didn't know. <laughs> the it's only like, thing I'd well, seen from Kodak in the last few years was the Kodak Gallery, and it was a it was a really pretty good site where you could put your photos up, and you can, you know, buy mugs and T-shirts and things like that. And I had a lot of friends that used it. Well, Shutterfly owns that now. They either merged or sold out, you know. But Kodak Gallery is gone too, um, you know. So I. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what they could do to reinvent themselves. Yeah. Well, they got they've got that patent portfolio, which is trying to get they're trying to squeeze some money out of it. And so well, far, it's a patent on film, though. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't. I'm not familiar with all the nuances of what's in their portfolio, but so far, twenty percent, right? So that's like putting mm-hmm. that's putting something on eBay for a hundred bucks and only getting offers of twenty dollars on it. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, the digital now is you know it's now started to get into the labs and the dental offices and everything else where that was the other part of the film. You know, when, when you go to the dentist's office and they would, you know, do the little x-rays and all that film and processing, that's all digital now too. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I have no idea what could be next for them. I don't know. And Valerie, what do, what do you think? Do you, do you have any <laughs> thoughts on, on Kodak and, and just what their status is? No, I think I, I, I don't. And I, it's kind of sad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're laying off so many more people, and it seems like everything is on clearance at Kodak. So, um, are they on their way out completely? But I, th- I think of those layoffs, and I think I'm thinking they still had 300 people to lay off. I'm like, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> you know, the plane has been on its approach for a while, you know, and just sort of had its landing gear down. So you would think that people were like, okay. Maybe Sony uh, should have bought them. Yeah, or something. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm being insensitive, but I'm just thinking just from a from an outsider's perspective, looking into the company, it just seems like, okay, if we as consumers that have been in the photography space for a long time, collectively, probably, what, 100 years or so, you know, then it's like we see what's happening. Why Why don't people inside see what's happening and, you know, act accordingly? People are not printing. I mean... People are not printing much anymore no. either. I mean, we all have to take um, Martin Bailey's class, Pixels to Pigment, yes. to get back mm-hmm. to printing. <laughs> no, his, uh, you know, Martin's Martin's ebook, which is available on Craft and Vision, is evil. I got to tell you, that, that is the Necronomicon or something, because it has gotten me to print more than I've printed in the last 10 years in the last, oh. say, month. Because you know? I can do it now. He just makes it so easy. It's very cool. So definitely, definitely check out Martin's book over on Craft and Vision. Um, it's really, really good. Okay, so yeah, any other thoughts on Kodak, you guys? What do you, what do you think? Should we should we exit the story and go on to the next one? Like Kodak is exiting the printer business. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> it did remind me a little bit of um, when when Steve Jobs came back to to Apple. Uh, one of the first things he did was get rid of their pl- printer lines. 
and in order to focus on the the computers. But then you look around at Kodak and you say, okay, let's get rid of the printers. And you turn around and you're like, well, there's not much left. Not the focus, so yeah. I think it's just a matter of time, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but I was surprised to hear the 20% number in terms of their patents because actually the uh, not to make this a phase one ad, but the the the, the chip that's in in the P series um, phase one backs are all manufactured by Kodak. And the the chips that's in the Leica M9, the M8.2, and the M8 are all uh, Kodak chips as well. So I thought that technology would have been worth more than 20% of its value. I wonder what the temperature is like or just like the morale is like inside Kodak right now. Because I would think it's kind of like what it was at Yahoo before Marissa Meyer showed up. You know, just kind of like, oh, what are we going to do? We're listing. We're rudderless. You know, we we don't know what to do. And there's... There's more people than there are rafts, you know, on the, or, you know, there's not enough life preservers or something, you know, and then now Marissa Meyer at Yahoo shows up and now, you know, the company has kind of a second breath, um, hopefully at least press perception wise. I wonder if there's anything that Kodak can do to get that second breath back or is it just, you know, it's like the doctor with the patient after, you know, it's time to call it and time of death kind of thing. Yeah, I think they're in yeah. hospice at this point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Time to put Kodak in the hospice. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. All right. This next story, guys, this is, you know, on the lighter side of things. Um, it's really interesting. So there's a new app out called One Momento, which <laughs> you guys laugh. See? <laughs> I would say Un Momento. No, I don't know what the Memento. One Momento is. I live Memento. in California, and here we say Un Momento, you know? So. <laughs> Um, I w- the name of the app is called One Momento, and basically what they're saying is the. Let me read the specs here. So the user will have a two-hour window. You can take a photograph, so only one photograph. After you take that photograph, you'll have a two-hour window to retake your one photograph. Once taken, your photo will be uploaded to a gallery and assigned a unique number, and only two hundred and fifty thousand photographs will be collected and displayed online. So, uh. <laughs> okay, so I understand the sort of the allure of the sort of limited limited kind of production of all this stuff, but what I haven't I haven't looked into this yet. So my first question would be okay, 250,000. So I'm going to I got to click and look at how much this app costs and do the math to see how much they're going to make free. on this. It's free. There's no I advertising in it. There's got to be advertising free in it. Free on iTunes. There's got to be some re- I got to find out what the revenue model is cuz Two hundred fifty thousand is a lot of. So then, so that my first question would be, okay, what's the revenue model then? And then the second question would be, what are their terms of service in terms of the images that are collected and uploaded? So this is the this is the pessimist in me, the pessimistic photographer. That should be a book. The mm-hmm. pessimistic <laughs> photographer in me. It's a good title. I know, right? The pessimistic photographer uh, in me. You know, I'm just thinking, what what is the ulterior motive? This can't be completely altruistic. Dan, what do you, what do you think? I mean, would you you use an app like this and if so you know didn't we talk about this like a month or two ago we, about we something did. like this did we yeah. i don't know i, I, I don't know if it was this app but initially my first thought which i'm gonna stick with what i said before it's the stupidest thing i've ever heard <laughs> that said <laughs> the fact that they're sharing online um you know and you get to see everybody else's it's it's kind of cool because then it's a little bit more of a project mm-hmm. i think the thing we talked about initially was either a camera that only took one Yes. picture ever and that was it um you know and i had mentioned earlier you know when in my workshops when i've taught people 
I did it the way it like was when I was in school. We had a 24 or 36 roll of film mm-hmm. and you had one assignment and, you know, you had to shoot and fill that roll and get three good shots. Yes. We had a similar assignment. So you really yeah. had to concentrate. So I think it's a really good way to learn and develop your eye. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, it's kind of gimmicky too, but I, I do like the sharing aspect to see what everybody else could come up with. That makes it not so stupid. This reminds me of, remember, I mean, it was like a couple of years ago, there was this app that came out in the app store that cost some crazy amount of money, like a hundred yeah. bucks or something. And it was, you know, and all you got was an icon on your phone that you could show people that you paid this much money to get this thing. Or I don't know. You remember that? It was ridiculous. It was, you, you, you pay all this money and all you got was this icon to prove that you paid a lot of money for it. You know, and the, not that this is in that, but this this whole like limited thing reminds me of that. I understand where they're going with this, where, okay, think really hard about this image that you're going to shoot and make it awesome and then upload it and that becomes yours, you know? But if there's got to be like some sort of contest aspect to it or something. I don't know. Maybe. But as many of us know, some of the best images are the ones you don't plan. Right. Right. Yeah. Can you imagine if all you had was this, like, say this was a camera and that only took one photo and you were keeping it for that special occasion in your glove compartment? Yeah. And (laughs) aliens land on the highway next to you and start abducting people. And then you, (laughs) I get one shot. Oh, man, it's out of focus. (laughs) You know, I kind of like the idea. I I think it's a fun project. Yeah. Mm hmm. But you so could, you don't band, need an app to do, do that. It. You could just like we were saying. Yeah, I remember now because yeah. I said before you could just challenge yourself. Yeah, I mean, you can do it. Yeah, just challenge yourself. Yeah, we you could. Could. Well, and it's one memento, not momento, which means one memory. Oh, not mm-hmm. momento. Um, Wait, oh, memento. Yes, okay, memento, I read it right? wrong. There's an e, um, not an o. <laughs> I I think well, it could be kind of um, yeah, a project. You know, like you walk out the door. You need a little boost on your creativity. You say, okay, today I'm just going to shoot things that are yellow or red or, or um, you know, just just for a fun project. Mm-hmm. Um, and and here it's the same thing. You have two hours to come up with a really amazing f- photo and, um, and and it's fun. It's free mm-hmm. and why not? Yeah. And I think I, thought- I, I, I totally believe in the power of limitations. So not not when you're beginning – are you a, a total beginner and you really need to experiment and you need to work your scene, you know, to really come up with a creative angle um, of any any subject. But once you're you're comfortable with your gear, I think um, limiting yourself to to uh, a certain amount of, of 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 frames in a day or to just one lens, like a fixed focal length uh, lens for the day, you'll learn more. You'll definitely make better pictures yeah yeah I, I would love to see an app where similar to this but it would only like valerie was just saying it would only allow you to take a certain number of photos in a day like so and then maybe you know by in a certain window of time or something so some sort of restrictions in there so that it would force you to go out and maybe it would the app would even give you ideas like say okay today is a green day so go out and take photos of green things only and you have from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. today to do it and then, you know, or else the, the window closes and then tomorrow will be a new topic. And then it would bring all that stuff together at the end of the month or the end of the quarter yeah. or whatever and then judge that and whoever wins gets a prize. That you would know, be cool. You know? And taking a mm-hmm. step back, we we're talking about how far cameras can go and what's next. I think that that might be something where that's where cameras will go because, I mean, glass is glass. I mean, how much can you do there? Yeah, Chips can only get so much bigger, so it'll probably be 
interior where those applications and those smart objects are inside the camera analyzing and looking at color and looking at shapes and just helping you shoot more than just a rule of thirds on the screen. Right, right, right. So, you know, one thing I thought was uh, I love the idea of this of this app. I thought it was very interesting from a creative perspective. But one thing that was a little disappointing when I read the details of it is that you can take a picture with the phone and the app or you can upload one from your current library. Uh-huh. And oh. I thought that was a bit of a cheat because it's like, well, okay, that's so, that breaks yeah, it. That, yeah, that doesn't seem broken. to make. Yeah, that, yeah, it totally doesn't make it work at all because it's not like you you're going to go out and catch the northern lights or you're going to catch some unique yeah. event that happens once a year or something. And so I thought that was that a little bit of a break breaker for me. Yeah. In that, in that I regard. agree. Yeah. Mm, interesting. All right. Well, listeners, if you want to check it out, just um, it's called One Memento. Thank you, Valerie, for correcting me. Not Un Momento. It's One <laughs> Memento with an E. Uh, it's available in the App Store. You can check it out. It's free. You can play with it and uh, see if you like it. See if it stretches and uh, improves your creativity. And if you're in Chicago, we say, yeah, hold on a minute over there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh man! Made yeah, there should be all kinds minutes. of like like dialect differences in that name for different parts of the country or the world, right? That's right. Uh, all right. Quickly, story number four is about IKEA. So IKEA Saudi Arabia has been photoshopping women out of its catalog. So we recently talked about IKEA that they were moving to full digital renderings or 3D, and I think uh, Dan, you were on that show, right? Yeah. We're talking about going yeah. IKEA going 3D in lieu of actual quote unquote photography. So now they're in the news for using Photoshop to yank women completely out of their catalog. So um, I wanted to put it to this group for discussion. You know, you know, people's customs and religions and all that stuff, notwithstanding, from a pure technical standpoint, does it make sense for them to do this? And Secondly, Dan, specifically at you, why don't you take this first? Um, okay, I'll be quick because I know I've answered too many. But if they're um, if they're if they're rendering the, if they're doing renderings, why don't they just like render men only? I, mean, wow. I don't understand well, why you got to render like and then Photoshop women out. I don't understand. Honestly, it. I don't. I don't know. It sounds bad. I don't see anything wrong with it because you know, look, I grew up on the South Side of Chicago. Ads were different down the down there than they are up here on the north side. Mm-hmm. You know, different parts of the cities. There's different billboards. They're, they're targeted ads. So, and when you have a certain sector, one part of the world that has a certain belief, then you cater to that if you want to advertise to them. Right. And right. I, I don't know. I just didn't. I didn't necessarily. And again, nothing against women at all. I just understand it's just targeted marketing. And maybe I'm sim- oversimplifying it too much, but. Um, you know, they're if they're if they're going after an Asian market, you know, they're not going to shoot, you know, uh, non Asians. If they're you know going after a black market or a white market, they're going to cater for that, just as McDonald's does and Burger King and Wendy's and everything else. So you say you know? this, this is a simple case of ad targeting, and 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 just the fact that it's Saudi Arabia who has a you know we all know how they you know their their customs and and that sort of thing towards women. So we're, we we may be blowing a reading into it too much, and this may just simply be okay. They know who their target market is, and they want to appeal to them. So this is what on a surface doing. level that that's what I see without reading much more into it. So well, I but think Valerie if they were a little more international than me, so I'd be curious to see what she says. If they were well, a company operating only inside of Saudi Arabia, then I could see that they 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 might you know do whatever they need to do to appeal to. A certain market, but given that they're uh, very much an international company, and and it does come down to to perception for pretty much for the rest of the world, I think the the safer sort of boardroom decision probably would have been to say like, well, 
whether they're rendered or, or actual photographs. Let's just do the Saudi Arabian ones without people at all. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that was is maybe just a safer bet from just from a you know politically correctness point of view. Like, well, we're just not putting any people in men, women, or children, and that 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 perhaps might have been a better way because they yeah. do operate more on an international global scale, and that they they are they do open themselves up to that sort of criticism. Yeah. Yeah. Valerie, what about you? What do you, what do you think about this? Well, actually I studied international marketing in college and, and I mean, you need, they're, they're in, in it to make money. They need to know their market and they need to cater to their market. I totally agree with Dan. Um, even though this is, this could be against their values and, and it's a bit shocking. They, they're selling in Saudi Arabia to, to make money. And also I think it's a franchise. So they, um, IKEA Sweden may not have that much to say uh, mm. about that either, right, but right. Um, you know it's just like when you you name a product that you're going to sell internationally, you better make sure it doesn't mean anything mm-hmm. weird and the countries you're planning on selling it. You know, mm-hmm. um, and and companies make make those mistakes all the time. So you know, and and uh, while Dan will will be able to to tell for sure because he's our photoshop expert here but um this is not photoshop the the picture that they um some of the pictures are clearly two different images mm-hmm. um yeah if you yeah. click on the link um the kitchen uh the lighting is completely different everything is set up differently so they actually took two different pictures one with people one without people yeah yeah so okay, so if you guys let me put it to you to to you three. So you are your commercial photographer, otherwise photographer for hire, and maybe it's not IKEA because IKEA is a gigantic company. It's going to be hard to turn down a a gig from them. But if you you know a client approaches you and they say, hey, we want you to do this particular job that in some way goes against your values um, as a person or you know religion or political standing, whatever, you know, it just goes against what you as a person stand for. How do you handle that? Do you turn the job down? Do you just suck it up and say, business is business. I'm going to do the job and walk away and swallow my pride or what? Valerie, what do you, what, do you, what would you do? Well, it would all depend on what it is. You know, you have to compromise, you, you know, you got to cater to your clients. So if it's, you know, it, if it's as nothing illegal it's not or unethical. nothing like it's not, you know, it's not porn or anything like that. It's just sort of, you know, maybe they say we want you to take photos of Democrats and you're a Republican or something, you know, it's something innocuous like that. Yeah. You know what? Who cares? Then I, <laughs> you know, as long as they get the paycheck, I'll photograph, right you. you know, anyone. Um, and, and here I don't find it offensive. I mean, it's. They have to appeal to their market. It's not like it's a magazine, you know, showing pictures of women. I'm sure they can still buy Vogue in Saudi Arabia. So, Jeffrey, mm-hmm. going on to you, what happens if uh, you get presented with an assignment that uh, you may disagree with? You know, maybe it's something a little bit more than just the Republican versus the Democrat thing. But it's just something that gets under your skin and you're like, you know what? Uh, I don't know if I want to take this fee. What, what, what mm-hmm. do you do? Well, I've I've been presented with that situation a couple of times, and it's and it's, it's sort of always the same what scenario. Was what was the uh, situation? Well, I have uh, several clients who and architects who design uh, pharmaceutical laboratories, mm-hmm. and uh, we all know that a lot of that testing is done on animals. So, mm-hmm. uh, I've been commissioned several times. This probably I would say more than ten. 
to to shoot some of these um, these animal labs. And you know, fortunately, we're the question I always ask is, you know, are we getting in there before they're occupied? And uh, so, uh, in all cases, we have. But it's definitely one of those things. You know, it's it's hard to know exactly where you come down, and that that's a tough one because you know it does. Uh, does benefit mankind, but there's probably some better ways to do some of these tests. So it's, it's always a little uncomfortable going into some of those circumstances because you see you see the facilities and how the animals are likely to be treated. Although I've never seen one that's been occupied by any of the animals. Mm-hmm. So, but in all cases, I have you know they're all good clients uh, who do a variety of, of different building types, and uh, so I, I've gone along with it in all cases. But you know you do you do think about it and. Um, if it were, I can't think of a good example, but some other, some other type of, of building or, or assignment um, that really went against an abortion uh, clinic. Some, yeah, 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 things like yeah, there could be anything like like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, you know, whether if if you've had some strong personal views, yeah. then you know perhaps you shouldn't do it. But then again, yeah. you know, like like the IKEA example, you know, you are here to make money and and not necessarily judge um, judge what your your clients are are doing so but if you if it's a job you know because money talks right so at what point does is the breaking point where you know say say you're you're anti-abortion you know as dan brought up so say you're anti-abortion and you get a gig from planned parenthood and they want to do the spread or whatever and you are completely against planned parenthood what do you what do you do i mean and the money is above what you would normally expect to get from them and they're just going to pay you and you're like okay this would this would level off my books for the rest of the year if i did this one job do you take it or do you just turn it down on principle alone dan what do you think um if i was really truly strongly against something i I probably would you know something else regardless of the fee yeah pretty much yeah it's a million dollars it's two million dollars you turn it down well, no. In that case, if it's that much, <laughs> no, I told you. Yeah, be a okay, because then no, I no, can no, do but, all. You know, but then you turn that money around and and put it to whatever you believe in. Yeah, right. You know, right. use it against whatever it is. Um, no, there, everybody's got their price. I think sure. at some point, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just a, I mean, because just, if you look at it, I mean, it's your your personal and we're, we're going off on a tangent here a little bit, but you look at it. If you turn the job down, it's not like there's. Not another photographer standing in line behind you that's going to do right. the job anyway. It's not like you're stopping the job from being done, you know. So why not just take the money? Yeah. And yeah, well, I- plus you're just taking a picture. It's not like you're promoting the service or contributing to it. You're Your name's going to be on the ad campaign though, because photos by Valerie Jardin, you know, at the bottom of something that you stand, you staunchly stand against. Yeah, that's right. true. Yeah. So Well, gotta, I'll go on a case by case basis on You're this. like, I'll do the job, <laughs> yes. but you gotta I'm gonna be, you know, Jane Doe. <laughs> you know <what> I <laughs> no, see, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. I would stand behind my work and so the decision would have to come and I would have to be comfortable with it. Yeah, I agree. And I would have to be a hundred percent, you know. Yeah. So I mean where I would fall on it is I would it's you know, I mean, th- this was a complete unanswerable question. This was like the Kobayashi Maru in Star in Star Trek terms. You know, you, it's an unanswerable, unsolvable riddle, right? Because it depends on what the job is. It depends on what your views are, and it depends on your financial situation at the time. So, if it's a job that disagrees with your moral standing or your ideals or your worldview, and your kids are at home hungry, 
you probably would take the job anyway. Mm-hmm. But if you are okay financially and you can afford to be morally superior, then you can afford to turn the job down. So it, it there's a lot of ifs and variables yeah. in there. There's no black and white for this. So anyway, that was a trick question. I want to throw it at you guys. So forgive thanks. me. <laughs> Gee, thanks. You're welcome. All right. Uh, just a quick nod to our sponsor. This week in photo is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. So Shutterstock has over 20 million stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and video clips. If you're looking for images for your website, your blog, your print ad, your trade show swag, or even apps, Shutterstock is the way to go. They've got over 10,000 new images added to their database every single day. Some of the things in the shut- that Shutterstock gives you is it's a global image collection, so you can find images from across the world um, to suit your project. Um, you can choose between image packs and monthly subscription packages. You can basically choose whatever you need to fit your particular needs, and you don't have to compromise or buy more than you need or less You know, for a particular situation. So if you need just one image for your blog or a mock-up, you can just grab that image and go. You can download any image in any size, and you pay one price. So it's not like you have to pay more for higher-resolution images. You pay one price, and you grab the thing, and you go. So they've got the whole light box technology in there so you can down you can add a bunch of images to your light box and then pick and choose which one um with the photo or the video that works best for you as you go and then you keep moving on you can even use your ipad to do that and the, their ipad app is amazing by the way i've been using it a lot lately in fact i used it for to find the image that we are showing in the blog post for this episode um, it is, uh, it's really easy to use and you can just, you know, like I did just sit in front of the TV and swipe through and find something and click it and go. So all kinds of things that Shutterstock offers like enhanced, enhanced license access. If you like an image, um, and you want to run it in print or on, you know, your printed materials for a trade show, etc., you can get an extended license for that. They've got multiple content types and a huge library of vectors, icons, and infographic templates and video clips. So all this stuff is just sort of available to you. Just go to Shutterstock.com, search for what you need, and grab it. And the cool thing is you can get an account rep dedicated to you that will answer any questions that you have. Plus, they have 24-hour a week or 24-hour a day support during the week. So definitely check it out. You can sign up for free. Just head over to Shutterstock.com. Sign up for your free account. You don't need a, a credit card or anything like that. When you find the image that you like and you decide to purchase it, be sure to use the offer code TWIP10. That's money. TWIP10 and get 30% off any package. TWIP10. That's that's worth 30%. Just those couple of characters. Um, just head over to Shutterstock.com and use that offer code TWIP10. So this week, um, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I did an interview with photographer and educator Michael Willems. So definitely give that a listen now. It's really inspirational about all the things that he's been up to and how he got into photography. Michael Willems is a Toronto-based art and event photographer, and he's one of the one of North America's most experienced photography educators and coaches. And he's trained thousands of up-and-coming photographers from the complete newbie all the way up to the experienced pro. In this interview, we're going to be discussing the idea of how photographers need to be omnipresent, or in other words, why they need to have multiple revenue streams in order to be successful in today's market. So, Michael, welcome to This Week in Photo. Well, thank you, Frederick. It's great to be here. 
It is. It's good to have you. I mean, we. I know you and I have been. We've been playing around back and forth on Facebook for a while, trying to get this thing scheduled, and now here we are, live on Skype. Yeah, in the same room. <laughs> in the same room, kind of. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. Only yeah. a country away, but you know who knows. That's right. So let's get started. Um, you know, I know, I know. I want to be respectful of your time. I know you're in the middle of a gallery show, which we're we're going to talk about. But I wanted to talk about just. Your background for folks that may not be familiar with who Michael Willems is, how did you get started in photography and, and what's your pedigree? So I got started as an amateur way back in, in, in the 1980s when my interest in photography, which I had as a kid, was really kindled by the fact that I traveled. I traveled to some pretty wild places. Uh, uh, at that time, I was an engineer and I spent time in Libya and in Iraq and in Saudi Arabia and Nigeria and all these places that are wild and, and you know, pretty wonderful in, in many ways and, and pretty scary in others. And I really felt, and, and I know a lot of people have felt that, like, for instance, uh, servicemen and women who are in, in those countries now, that when you're there, it's so different. And people back home have no idea. Yeah. And I really wanted to, 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 to share that. And one way to do that is, is, is visually. And so that's when I started learning a little bit about photography, learning a bit more. Uh, and eventually I started selling some of my pictures. I started to uh, engage in all sorts of photography. Uh, many years later, I, did, I, I added formal training. But I must say I learned an awful lot, not from the formal training so much, but from using it in, in my capacity as a, as a new, newspaper shooter. So talk to me about the formal training piece of it, because a lot of, you know, I ask that of a lot of educators that come on the show of kind of what their take is in terms of photographers today and the best way to learn, because there's, there's an amazing amount of resources online to learn and be inspired by photography. And then there's also workshops and formal schools that they can go to. What's your take on it? What's the best way to learn? Uh, well, you know, of course, I have perhaps an agenda. I think part of that, at least, is personal training. Uh, it, it, it's what I do because I yeah. find that books, you know, if books were enough, Frederick, then we could just close universities and just lock our kids in, in rooms and, you know, give them a pile of 200 books and say, come out when you've read them. Right. Um, doesn't work like that. So I think a mix. I think personal training is very important. Uh, I did a mix of everything. I did things like online training. I took the New York Institute uh, course. I did training at local colleges, community colleges, um, and I did a lot of personal coaching and training. But I will say I learned I learned a lot by doing. Um, as a newspaper shooter, of course, you're a portrait photographer in the morning, and then you're a food photographer, and two hours later, you're an event photographer, and then, and then you're suddenly, uh, uh, you know, you name it, whatever it is, you're shooting it. And you have to learn, and you cannot fail. So I think for any photographer, I'd say get training and do it any way you like. Don't just get remote training, online training, or book training. I don't know about you, but, you know, I've never, I've never learned much from a book. You, you, the book tells you where to start. Yeah, you know. yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And it's it, when when you look at when you're you're getting inspired and you're looking at uh, say a Photoshop CS6 book or even a photography book, and you're like, oh, okay, I understand those concepts of doing whatever particular technique they're talking about. You can un, you can understand it intrinsically and have it in your brain, but you don't actually have it until you actually get out with a camera 
and start shooting because then you forget everything that was in that book, right? Yeah, you forget everything you ever knew. You're standing there and you're thinking, uh, what was I going to do again? <laughs> yeah. What's the shutter speed? Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Aperture? <laughs> where, where do I start? I have what? Aperture, ISO, uh, the, the shutter. Where do I start? Help. But of course, you don't show that and, and you learn. And after the first dozen times you've shot something, it becomes second nature. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit. So you're on the road right now. What are you, what yeah, are you doing? Actually, what are you doing ah, on the road? Good. I'm actually doing, I'm presenting right now a five-day course. I'm teaching a five-day course at Brock University here in uh, St. Catharines, Ontario, very close to Niagara Falls. Um, five-day course uh, with nine students uh, called Demystifying Digital Flash. Oh. Now, I could teach that course in uh, a day. But if I taught that course in a day, then my, my students would go away and they'd have all sorts of questions. Uh, that, that's a little bit better than reading a book. But five days is great because now I don't just explain how um, aperture priority works or more importantly what TTL does on the inside or how to do a high key portrait with one flash. Uh, no, I explain it. And, and then we spend two hours struggling until everyone understands it and starts to actually get it in their fingers. We have muscular memory. Yeah, absolutely. Now, is it is it platform? Is that particular workshop is it platform specific? Are you teaching Canon or Nikon or or some other uh, platform? Uh, actually, both. I, I know all of the platforms, but I know in particular Canon and Nikon. You know, CLS and 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 ETTL uh, mm-hmm. very well. I know them equally. I think most pros really need to use the uh, know both. Great, great. Now, okay. So let's before we jump into this. Now, you you got me started on the flash. Dude. I, I love small strobe photography mm. and just the portability of it and the whole strobist movement, you know, all that stuff. So Absolutely. what's where, where do you fall on that? Because I know some photographers are saying that because of the sort of up and to the right trend of video adoption that and how DSLRs are getting better and better, you know, look at the red camera and, you know, these just cameras that you're hope, you know, eventually you may be able to pull a frame from it and that will be good enough to act as a still photo, which means flash photography might go away. Right. So what do you think about that? I mean, is that is that where things are going? Is flash photography maybe going away? Nah, and I'll tell you why I don't think so. Um, you know, for a creative photo, of course, I can use one light. I can use one flash, aim it 45 degrees behind me, maybe off to the side 45 degrees, you know, set my, my aperture, shutter and ISO appropriately and, and produce a great high key or low key or whatever it is portrait. But uh, very often for a creative photo or for a photo in difficult circumstances, I may need off-camera flash, I may need two speed lights or, or strobes or whatever I'm using, I may need three. I may even need four. Maybe I'll even do, you know, a corporate portrait where I use a traditional uh, key light and a fill light and a hair light and a background light. Yeah. Well, if I'm doing video, now I need four constant lights. I need four hot lights sitting there. Now I'm outside and I want to nuke the sun. What, I'm going to turn on a 2,000-watt light for three hours? Right. I, I can't see it, Frederick. And plus another thing, when I take a photo and I, I get back to my, my laptop or my iMac or whatever I have. I plug in my camera, and if I know what I'm doing in the camera, 20 seconds later, my photo is online or in my customer's Dropbox. If I'm doing video, 20 hours later, it's there. <laughs> two, two versus 20, or two minutes versus 20 hours. Yeah, I love that. Exactly. I exactly. love that. Well, what about weddings? I'm going to jump down to just the, the idea of weddings. I know you do weddings as well. Yeah. What do you will this sort of technology moving forward change wedding photography? Because if I can if someone if a bride can hire someone to shoot video and that videographer can just yank out frames, then they can save money on the photographer, right? 
Yeah, but they're not going to because, A, the videographer can produce great still frames, but only from scenes that he happens to have lit properly. And again, there you have the limit. You know, it's hot lights or personal, you know, available light or whatever it is, but it's not creative light. And, of course, it's only what he happens to be able to capture. So if you have a good piece of video, great, but you're not going to get a good piece of video of everything. Video is limited also by the fact that, for instance, as a photographer, Frederick, I can jump up and down, I can crawl behind, you know, the altar and and shoot from the left i can shoot from the right i can now get up and run to the back and shoot i don't want to do that with video you know that video would make me sick yeah yeah absolutely so keeping on the wedding sort of tangent here you're a wedding shooter like i mentioned before how do you find your clients these days uh, mainly word of mouth. Now, of course, I have a website to live to love dot com. I have, you know, for the wedding specific uh, uh, photography. I have, I have uh, advertisements and so on. I do that kind of thing, but it's really mainly word of mouth. So no, no straight advertising. It's all, but but then see, the, the, I hear that a lot. A lot of you know, a lot of photographers say, yeah, all my clients are coming through referrals and word of mouth. But to the new photographer that's just getting started, they're like. Oh, great. So that means I'll never get started because I have no mouths to give the word. You know, <laughs> how do they do that? Ah, because, of course, yes, I may be a new wedding photographer uh, since a number of years ago. Right. But um, I'm not a new photographer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the same applies to most people. You don't start as a wedding photographer be- before you start as a wedding photographer. First, you're going to have assisted. You're going to have made a million contacts in the industry. You're going to have shot family portraits. You're going to have maybe even taught people, certainly in my case, you're going to have contacts. If you're going to hang out your shingle, I do have some advice. Hang out a shingle, you've done nothing before. Well, then you have a unique selling point. And that is, I'm not booked full for the next three years. Mm. You know, that could be a unique selling point for a starter. You know, if you have a wedding two weeks from now, unannounced, unexpected, in Vegas with Elvis, I will shoot it. On-demand wedding photographer. Look at that. Yeah, ready to available go. wedding photographer. How's that? Then, then how do you how do you price yourself then? If you're if you're in that, I know because it it goes the range. I've seen at, on the far left, it's the photographer that says, "Hey, I'll just show up at your wedding for for X amount of hours. I'll shoot it, and I'm going to give you a disc right at the wedding, and my hands are washed of it. I'm done." And then on the our far right side of it, it's the wedding photographer that does. The full folio box and album enlargements and the whole display room and all that stuff. What's the right way to go? Well, I don't know that I know the right way, but my opinion is we're in between somewhere. Um, uh, You know, the world is moving away, Frederick, from the kind of wedding photography where, you know, you must uh, do this and uh, as a customer and the customer must do that. And the customer can only book things by going into the studio and the customer must choose images within uh, five weeks. And the customer must do this in the studio and the customer must choose at least 50. You know, we're going away from that because we're all sophisticated now. We all know how Lightroom works. You know how many brides and bridegrooms know how Lightroom works? Yeah, they own it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're moving away from that old model where you know the print is a lot of money and and the wedding is maybe fairly affordable, but the compulsory prints and the album and the leather-bound Italian album—they're great, by the way, as options. But I think well, here's what I do: um, I price the wedding based on how many hours are I and my co-shooter going to spend on it, and I mean totally spend on it. And that's from talking to the bride to shooting the wedding to driving there and back to unpacking the cars or the trucks or whatever to doing the post, to uh, uploading the post, you know, the entire A to Z trajectory of at least getting the shoot ready and producing a USB stick with all the images, if that is my starting point. How many hours is that? And then I multiply that by a by reasonable hourly rate, and that's the cost of the wedding. 
then they, they do get, you know, large images from me. But of course, although there's no there's no there's no push to buy you know upsell uh, items such as albums and large prints. There's an enormous pull because yes, they can do it themselves in Lightroom, uh, but I do it better and uh, I do it without spending 800 hours to try and put an album together. And I know already how to 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 produce thank you cards after the wedding within days that are wonderful and have a great image on them and so on. And they don't. And life's too short. Right, right. So you're you're selling professionalism versus. I can almost get there, right? Yeah, yeah, and I'm selling ease of life, and I'm not pushing, I'm pulling. I really want my customers to come to me, not because I say it is compulsory. Uh, you know, I don't like that compulsory thing. We're moving away from that. Customers are empowered. I like, th- I like that idea of, of differentiating yourself by quality and, and being a professional. Because it's like, yeah, it, like using the restaurant analogy, anyone can, make a, can cook a steak, right? Anyone can cook a steak and, and make a really nice presentation, but... You go to these five-star restaurants because you know they're going to do it better and of the pre- and the presentation is better and all that stuff, right? Of course. If I run a restaurant, I want to run a French bistro, not a McDonald's. Nothing against McDonald's. Great. But, but the fact that there's 80 billion McDonald's in the world doesn't mean that there isn't a space for, for French bistros where the steak costs a lot more but it's better. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Move to the, to the high end of the market and, and position Absolutely. yourself like that. So let's talk a little bit about. Um, so we're going to get in. So that you can see, listeners, you can see that we're we're bouncing around in this interview. We've talked about a lot of stuff, and the overarching theme that's going on here is, like I mentioned when I introduced Michael, is the the idea of being omnipresent. Michael is has his hands in a lot of different different areas, and I'm I'm touching on a number of them. Then we're going to sew it all together at the end. So Michael. You're you're also you shoot nude photography. I was looking at some of your work on Tumblr. It's brilliant. It looks awesome, by the way. So I want to talk about that a little bit. So how does that fit into your overall suite of products? Is it do you shoot them just for practice, for fun, for the models, or is it a, is it a, a legitimate revenue stream that's bringing in good money? It's a bit of both. It's it's a revenue stream because of course there is revenue in art. Now revenue in art takes time to develop because you have art. Well, art sells when it sells. Um, uh, so, so yes, there is revenue, but it's not short-term revenue. It's longer-term revenue. There's other sources of revenue as well in shooting nudes, and there's there's really two sorts. One is people see artwork, and I like to shoot artistic photography, and you know, it is better to look at an artistic nude and say, hey, that's a really cool shot, than to look at an executive headshot, uh, well executed. You know, you're not going to go and, and look at a website of executive headshots well executed and say, oh, that's great. Yeah, you, know, you may do, but it's, it's less likely. Right. So, so it also um, increases my desirability as a photographer for other things, for example, for portfolios. Indeed, even for family shoots and for boudoir and for whatever people want to shoot, if they think I'm a good photographer and if they see that, that also is a revenue stream. Okay. Well, well, take me through the flow of that. So you you just do the photo- do the the models that want to be photographed come to you and say, "Hey, I need I need shots done." Oh, yeah. And then they ask you how much. Take me through the flow from initial contact all the way through to the final product that you hand over to the model and what that is. Yeah. Uh, and that of course depends on where you are in that in that in that process. If you're a beginning photographer, you will be paying models for things like nude shoots you know the idea of uh, time for prints as it used to be called uh, you know that that doesn't really work for nudes you know people don't you know if they're good uh, models want to be paid in some way 
yeah. at least initially. If they don't know you, if you're Fred Smith and you have a digital rebel and you want to shoot nudes, well, then you can do that. You go to Model Mayhem or some other site like that. You see who's perhaps suitable, uh, available, and so on. You work out a deal and you pay for it. But, of course, once you get established as a photographer and you're good – it starts to work the other way around because now models want to be shot by you because they know they're going to get great shots. Um, you know, the, the art of a portrait photographer and nudes are no exception. Uh, in fact, they're even more so. That art is to make people look their best and to, to create something artistic, um, uh, you know, without doing the Vogue Photoshop treatment, you know, to create something that's really nice and artistic and that people can say, wow, that person looks great and that picture looks great and that light is great and so on. Yeah. So there's there's revenue in that, of course, from, from that perspective. But here, too, there are a couple of different ways that I get new models. You know, I have one model I shoot a lot. I have a lot of offshoots from that. And I have a lot of models who come to me from word of mouth. So it's word of mouth. It's word of model mayhem. Because one model whom I shoot, who, who um, you know, publishes the pictures, uses them in their portfolio, maybe uses them on Model Mayhem. Well, at the moment, the model has great pictures on Model Mayhem, and my logo is imprinted upon that 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 picture, of course, small in the left-hand bottom corner, but it's there, legible. People come to me. And, and then when you're good, people will come to you and pay for you. And what's that, what's, what does that pay? How much, how much are, are models paying you? And take me through that piece. Entirely depends. If it's a model that I really want to shoot, it can be as little as zero. If it's uh, someone who wants a shoot and and it's something that I can use, yeah, I get uh, um, I, you know I get to keep the copyright and they sign a model release, then it can be zero or or cheap, maybe forty fifty bucks or something like that. Mm. If, however, it's something where I'm shooting for someone and they want the images, perhaps for example for their husband. Um, uh, well, then, of course, it's a commercial rate. Then, you know, whatever my time is times what my hourly rate is, is what they're going to pay. And perhaps a little bit more if they're going to use the images commercially. So so there's a wide range. You know, this is, as you said earlier, we're jumping. Within subjects, we're jumping. There's no one way to make money in a particular type of photography. And within photography, we're jumping. There's not one type of photography. There's very few photographers who successfully make a living doing just one thing. Right, right. And what about makeup? Are you when you when you're on a shoot, are you engaging with a makeup artist or or do they come made up and ready to go? No, it depends. Uh, some shoots, yes, I want makeup and a hairstylist and other shoots, no, because uh, natural is very nice as well. So it really depends on what the shots are for and who the model is. Okay. Okay. Uh, and I do. If you look at my Tumblr feed, uh, you'll see that I shoot uh, models without any makeup and models with with professional makeup proper hair t- uh, stylist and so on. And they look different. They look and feel different. You want the Vogue look or you want the, um, you know, a girl in the middle of nature looking out at, at, at the horizon with the hair blowing kind of look. Yeah. And and are you, are you giving them the, the retouched images only or do they get everything that you've shot? How does that work? No, they only get uh, retouched images. But I will say I don't do much retouching because when I shoot and I come back with with 400 images from an outdoor shoot perhaps or 200 images or some some such number, I don't want to spend five minutes on each image or even one minute. That's that's three hours. Yeah. Um, you know, So I tend to shoot in the camera. What I do outside the camera is minor corrections. You know, someone has a facial blemish, a pimple, something temporary. Well, I'll take that out, of course. Uh, I'll crop. If I need to do any minor exposure adjustments, I'll do them. But I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at shooting in the camera. If you look at my Tumblr feed, most of that work uh, on the Tumblr feed is straight out of camera with none or with very, very minor uh, corrections. 
However, yes, it's always true. Out of if I do shoot, shoot 200 pictures, there'll be 20 or 30 I don't like. Well, I only share the ones I like. As a photographer, I think you'll agree. You, you, your worst work is the work you'll be judged on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you shoot a wedding with 1,800 great images and 100 lousy images – They'll say he's really bad. Look at this, what he shot, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'll never happen. I use the, uh, in all my contracts and so on, I use the phrase photographer selection. Hmm. Uh, very, very, very good phrase, you know. And you will be entitled to, or you will receive a photographer selection of the images, blah, blah, blah. I love that. Oh, that's great. Now, I'm look- I am looking at your Tumblr feed right now. It's awesome. This is really good work. Now, what, what are you using to shoot these images? What's, what's the gear that you take on an average shoot? Ah, so I'm a big speed lighter, um, and I do everything, if I possibly can, with simple speed lights. So, so my, typical, my typical gear for an outdoor shoot, outdoor shoots, you tend to want to shoot quickly. Um, you know, it is possible that people will spot you outdoors, and then some people might object. If there are, you know, we're in Canada, we're pretty relaxed. I usually ask people if there's people around, hey, we're going to do a shoot, you may see some nudity. Is that a problem? No one's ever said yes. But conceivably, people could, and you could get into all sorts of issues, which, you know, you want to be quick. So normally when I shoot these, I'll have one speed light off camera in an umbrella. That's it. One speed light and one umbrella. Yeah, that's it. One speed light in an umbrella and then either a camera that can drive that speed light straight, so something like a Canon 7D or one of my one bodies. I just got a 1DX, great camera, with a 580 or a 600 on top of it. Wow. To drive that remote, flight. and that's it. I love that. You know, it's just the the idea of you can do some amazing work, as evidenced by your Tumblr feed, with very little gear, right? Yeah. I mean, you, like, a lot of photographers are out there like, okay, I need this, I need the best body, I need seven speed lights. They all need to be talking to each other. I need to light this window in the back and put a hair light and all this stuff, and then they end up not getting a lot of shots because it's so much manual labor involved with every shot and the the whole artistic and the flow and the connection with the model sort of goes out the window because you're fiddling with switches and dials and and all that stuff right yeah exactly and if you can keep it simple another thing is of course models don't always you know you lose a lot of spontaneity if i lose you know if i use uh, a key light and and a couple of uh, perhaps a hair light and, and you know the more lights i use the less spontaneous the shoot becomes oh sorry you can't use you can't move that inch yeah, yeah. You know, stay where you are. No, that doesn't. That, that destroys. The, <laughs> so know, I take it you're not shooting on a tripod when you're doing these, right? Absolutely not. No way. That's great. And do you always have an, uh, an assistant with you that's helping you get, keep things in order? Actually, rarely. For these shoots, rarely. I do it myself, and I got the model, and that's it. We're quick. You know, Frederick, what am I carrying? I'm carrying a donkey bag with all sorts of stuff in it. I'm carrying. Um, you know, a light stand with an umbrella and a speed light, and I'm carrying a 1D whatever body, and that's it. If you're outside, I hope you have a sandbag with you, too, to keep that umbrella from flying away, right? That's actually an interesting anecdote. One of the shoots you'll see if you go down a few pages on my Tumblr feed is um, in a provincial park near, near the town of Oakville, Ontario, where I live, mm-hmm. on a day that there were 65-mile-an-hour winds. And many of the shots that you don't see are shots where the model uh, has a startled look and is reaching for the falling umbrella. Yet. <laughs> That actually cost me an umbrella, that shoot, because after 18 falls, I think the umbrella was in tatters. You know? Oh, wow. But it was worth it, right? You got the shot? Yeah, but I got the shots. And yes, I do have a sandbag, but I, I try not to carry it because it's heavy. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of locations, how do you, how do you, do you scout locations first and then bring the model there? How, how does that work? 
Yeah, um, it depends. I, 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 I scout them or we just get in the car and say, hey, what about this? What about that? You know, you'll see some shots, for instance, in a ba- in a parking lot somewhere, you know, behind a store on a busy street. But the parking lot's private and the store was closed. So the parking lot was empty. Um, that's the kind of thing you find by chance. Got it. Got it. Very often that's when, you know, we drive around a little bit and look for seclu- secluded spots for places where, you know, there's not going to be anyone around, where we're not disturbing anyone, not upsetting anyone. And, you know, click, click, click. And after 10 minutes, we've got everything we came for. Wham, we're out of there. That's great. That's great. And then what is it like for from start to finish with a model shoot? Are you looking at an hour, three hours? How long does it take you? A couple of hours. Typically, it depends on where. I mean, if it's indoors, certainly a couple of hours. If I'm using strobes and so on, if I really want to go to town, then it's a couple of hours. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, a shoot can be as little as half an hour altogether. Wow, that's great. Okay, so let's let's jump to gallery. So I know you have a gallery show or you had a gallery show going on. Tell me about that. How did that come about? Um, I've done gallery shows before. I did a show about uh, about uh, uh, drug addiction, about people I followed in a in a drug den. A show called IV Intravenous that was part of uh, of the Contact uh, Toronto Photography uh, Festival uh, in 2009. I did that again uh, in a gallery. I got to know that gallery owner. I displayed some artwork, some nudes in that gallery, and we decided. Um, early on this year to do an exhibit, a curated exhibit for a month in that gallery. So I have the whole gallery now in Toronto's historic distillery district until, you know, right now it's, it's, it's August. So the beginning of September, it's, it's, it's a month long exhibit. That's great. Now, are you selling prints there or is it, is it just for viewing? No, no, it's for selling as well. And how's that going? How do you, how do you tell me about that? Just like a lot of photographers, myself included, included are clueless on that piece of it. When you, when you, you set up a gallery. First of all, how do you get the gallery showing? How do you get in there? And then secondly, once you're in there, how do you prepare for it? Are you printing everything yourself? Are you mounting it? Or do you have a company do it? What, 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 what happens? So a bit of both. So how do, you, how do you get there? Well, by knowing gallery owners, by, by showing portfolios and so on, and by getting a gallery owner interested and thinking, yeah, well, this may be interesting. And then either you pay for the gallery or you pay a little bit for the gallery or you pay only in profit sharing for the gallery. Depends on what the interest is and and so on. But you've got to get a gallery owner interested. So that's one. Um, Then when you've got that sorted, you then say, okay, well, you're interested. What are we going to display? If it's a curated exhibit where it's not you who decides this is what goes up, but it's the gallery owner. um, Well, then you decide uh, together on what you need. Okay, I want you to send me a selection of 100 possible prints that show the following. For example, for a gallery that shows nudes, you may want no explicit uh, sexuality, no no, uh, perhaps uh, images that could offend anyone. You might want to say... Uh, commercially to sell images to sell nudes you probably don't want a lot of recognizable faces because who wants a woman on the wall that you can recognize you know but an abstract black and white torso might be much more interesting so or it might be the opposite the point is you decide what you do then you decide from the options which ones you're going to hang and at what sizes and then i do all my prints myself up to say 13 by 19s And I do them myself because I've got perfect color, perfect everything. I've worked out long ago what drivers, what paper types, what inks, and so on. They're all um, giclés, as you would call them. They're all all good, you know, 12 inks, um, pigments, not dyes, and on permanent museum-quality paper. So they'll last 300 years, or they'll last longer than I will. Um, 
And, and, and those I do myself. But anything bigger, I farm out. And anything bigger, I tend to do a metallic paper, which is absolutely beautiful. That's, that's great. And then pricing-wise, how, how do you set pricing? Ah, so th- there's two inputs. You could say, what does it cost me to do? But that's, that's really a no-win no proposition. You don't do it that way. You say, well, what do similar works go for? It's like when you sell a house. You may think my house is worth you know, half a million dollars, but if the market says it's 200000 it's 200000 Right, right. Whatever the market will bear, right? And, and there you go, of course, to the gallery owner and other galleries, and you look at similar work, and you say, what are they selling for? One important thing is don't make them cheap. But that, but that's see, that's subjective though. How do you, how do you? What's a starting point? Do you research what other things are going for and then undercut that a little, or, or like you say, don't make it cheap, then go over like by whatever amount. Yeah, I mean, you know, a, a, a small when I say small, a framed thirteen by nineteen print, for instance, may go for about five hundred bucks, mm-hmm. five hundred dollars. Because if you make it twenty dollars, that's an IKEA. That's not art. <laughs> we're at, we're back to McDonald's, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're back to McDonald's. I mean. You know, if if yeah, if I want to buy an IKEA print, I can buy a beautiful print of Amsterdam or something in IKEA, and it's huge and it's like twenty bucks. But um, you know, it's not that well made, and of course, eighteen million other North American families have that same print in their kitchen. Yeah, yeah. So they want if you want unique, and you're going to pay for it, and just like anything else, right? Of course, and and in in a work of art, it's going to be a limited edition, or maybe even an edition of one. It's going to be hand titled and signed and dated. Uh, you know, the value of anything depends on its scarcity. Okay, so let, let's fast forward, Michael. Say you you've got your gallery, you've negotiated with the owner on what you're going to pay, if okay. anything, for it. You've got your prints made. You're ready to go. Everything's mounted. You're going to hang them on the wall. You got the dates, all that stuff. You know what you're going to sell these things at. You've priced them so that you, you're not McDonald's. Um, how do you get people in the door? What, what's, what's, the, what's the promotion sort of flow for that? Yeah, uh, press releases is very big. And social media is very big. Press releases because if it's an art exhibition, newspapers, uh, large national newspapers, local newspapers, you name it, specific art papers, magazines, photography magazines, websites, photography magazines themselves, all those will publish releases about an art exhibit. And especially if it's interesting, like Art Nudes is more interesting, perhaps, than an exhibit of uh, photographs of 18th century pencils. Um, Right, right. You know, for a larger audience, I shouldn't say more interesting, but it's for a larger audience. Anything like that will be published. Then social media, because of course, social media. Um, you know, where do we, where do we, where do we share things today? You set up a Facebook event, of course. You you uh, invite all your contacts, and you invite everyone else's contacts who is involved. So, for instance, in this exhibit, the main models' contacts and my contacts and the. Uh, gallery owners contacts and that's a total of about 2000 contacts many of those turned up have turned up will turn up so then okay you open the door so i'm going to play devil's advocate here so the the whole idea of doing a physical gallery opening contrast that with why not just do it online and and sell prints and make the whole thing electronic so that people from all corners of the globe can come and potentially be customers instead of people that are either in a geographic proximity to the gallery or that feel like flying there. 
Oh, sure thing. But of course, you do both. Um, the exhibit is a starting point, Frederick. The exhibit is where you start. The exhibit is what gives you publicity. It what gets it's what gets local people, gets really committed people in. It's what gets people in and talking about it. But of course, after the exhibit, uh, you do an end of exhibit uh, party, not just a beginning party. And then you do them online because by then it's previously exhibited work. It has a name. It has it has comments and reviews. It has uh, some recognition. And then you do them online. Got it. Got it. So, so com will have some of them online. In fact, by the end of the exhibit, all of them online or all the ones that are still available online anyway. Yeah. So we'll definitely link to all this stuff in the show notes for this episode. So let, let's let's round this out by talking about training and workshops because you do that as well. And clearly by just talking to you, you have a mountain of knowledge that you can share with people on how to do everything from shooting with strobe to regular photography to working with models to shooting weddings, all this stuff. Talk to me about training. What What do you do there? I feel so um, um, passionate about training, Frederick, because I think today, as opposed to in 1970, what did did a click call you, uh, cost you in 1970 or 1980? Well, it cost you 20 bucks every time you touched your camera. Yeah. Um, because you had to buy film, have it printed, have it developed, drive to the drugstore twice, pick them up, and then you like two pictures accidentally. (laughs) Exactly. And it's a week later, and you don't know what you did, because, of course, you you keep the notes, you know, roll five, exposure six, I shot at f5.6 at 125th. You keep those notes for about three weeks, and then you forget to do that forever. So, So you never learn. Today, everyone can learn pro skills, and very few people have them. And I feel very bad. There's nothing worse than people with... With whatever a D three hundred or a Canon the sixty D in the green square, uh, demonic, never to be used mode. Yeah, yeah. You buy you buy this amazing horsepower in a camera and put it on the green square and or auto and just run with it, right? And I blame the engineers who make these cameras, not the people who buy them. Um, Say that you buy a Canon camera, you know, the engineers, and I'm an engineer, uh, the engineers who make these cameras think it's obvious that everyone knows that AI servo means continuous focus. AI, of (laughs) course, means artificial intelligence, and a servo motor is a closely controlled electrical motor with built-in negative feedback loop. You mean you didn't know that? (laughs) Of course, everybody knows that. (laughs) So you call it AI servo. Well, uh, you know, out of of a thousand ordinary people buying an SLR, maybe, maybe three know that. Yeah. Yeah. So useless because they're written for engineers by engineers. And, you know, you don't learn from, from those manuals at all. And it's so easy to learn and it's so rewarding. Take your camera, you know, use it in manual if you're not in aperture mode. Put a, put a, put a, a prime 50 millimeter lens on. Learn a little bit how to direct the light. And wow, did you shoot that? Yeah. You know, you, Michael, you remember back in the, in the old days of photography, back when we were shooting film, um, you reminded me of this when you were talking about the the round tripping to the to the drugstore to get drop the film off and to pick it up and all that stuff. But do you remember the there was this whole idea of when people looked at your your photos, they'd say, "Oh wow, that came out." <laughs> you know? exactly. The whole idea that you did a good job if you could see something on the print <laughs> rather than it was a good photo. Yeah, Frederick, I still hear that after a wedding shoot. I'll have the bride ask me, "How'd they come out?" <laughs> did they come out? <laughs> yeah, did they come out, right? Yeah, that's it's amazing. You need a t-shirt that says that, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible, you know, yeah. So now everyone can learn this stuff, and it's so, so good and so rewarding. You know there's like a 90-10 rule, you know. It, it takes 10,000 10, hours to become an expert at anything. But the great thing about photography is that you can do 95% of that, that work in, in the first 5% of the time. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a, yeah. And, and taking workshops like yours and training from people like you and, and books and online resources and just sheer inspiration online from sites like 500 picks and Flickr and smug mug, all these places you can get inspired, you know, even magazines. I still get a lot of magazines like black and white magazine, outdoor photographer, and I get inspired. I go out and experiment and I can do it and experiment and fail, 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 succeed right on the spot <laughs> rather than weeks, right? Yeah, no, it's great. And you know what? It's such a passion photography for a lot of people. Uh, but if you don't take any training, whatever the form, whatever works for you, if you don't do that, you'll never get benefit out of it, you know, as much as you can. And and it's so easy. Yeah. yeah. It really is easy. I do, what I tell my, my students is, you know, photography is complicated like driving a car is complicated. It's not complicated like a Boeing 747, which actually is complicated. Yeah, but it's not complicated to the pilots that have been doing it over and over for decades, right? They, now it's yeah. muscle memory. Once it be, once something complex becomes muscle memory, then the fun starts, right? But the great thing about photography, it is like a car that you can learn a lot in very, very few lessons. You know, unlike a Boeing 747, takes years to learn. Well, guess what? You can learn a car in three weeks, you know, or in, in three days even if you have to. Well, photography, may, maybe not three days, but but you know what? You can learn an awful lot in those three days. Yeah, I agree. Well, Michael, this has been a, a great conversation. I want to, like I said at the beginning, want to be respectful of your time. Where where can people go to to see your work? Now, I'm going to link to to your Tumblr feed to all these different sites that you're present on in the show notes for this episode. But where, if you're if they're listening to this now and they just want to pump jump to it on their iPad or their iPhone or whatever, where should they go to start? Well, I think this starting point is MichaelWilliams.ca. That's Michael M I. C-H-A-E-L, Willems, and that's W-I-L-L-E-M-S dot C-A. And if you go to michaelwillems.ca, that takes you to my speedlighter.ca daily teaching site. It takes you to my camera training site, to the wedding site, to the exhibit site, to the Tumblr feed. So that takes you everywhere. Oh, great. So that's that's the hub for all of the all of Yeah, the that's the hub. You got it. Right. And, I look, and I look very grumpy on, on the picture there. But it was a one speed light picture, and I look grumpy because I'm holding the camera and, and it's very heavy. <laughs> very good. Well, Michael, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. This has been educational and inspirational. It's been entirely my pleasure. It's been a great pleasure to contribute a little bit, perhaps to, to TWIP, instead of just to take and listen and benefit from it, which I do every week. You're very welcome. All right, that was photographer and educator Michael Willems. Um, definitely check out his work. We'll link over to his various presences in the show notes for this episode. All right, moving on to listener Q&A. It's time for the segment where we answer questions that have been at the top of some of our listeners' minds. The first question is from Chris Hockley. Chris Hockley says, I'm considering a sales tool called ProSelect. And someone mentioned... Um, or someone mentioned you spoke about it in a past episode, which we did. I think Dan was on that episode. I did. He said, what else is out there for selling your photos, uh, your photos to clients? Web galleries aren't really working for my local clients. I have a feeling I could sell a lot more. I've been a pro user on SmugMug for over two years now, and although my clients say my site looks very professional, they drown in all the options and choices, hoping you can revisit the sales tools. Dan... You're the guy, right? This is what you do day in and day out. You're the yep. pro select guy. What what would you say to Chris Hockley? Get away from online sales, number one. Because what happens is people look at it and they go, oh, that's great. Oh, that's great. And then they forget about it. They go on to something else. And then they pick out theirs. And then they look at 
those again and then they get their mom involved. No, I don't like those. And it just goes on and on and on and on. Not to mention color calibration is not accurate. You can't be there to help answer questions about walls and ways to sell and things you can do to the crop and tone and all of the things to help them with the images. So a lot of the mom and dad photographers who are kind of part-time doing this, um, one way to really sell is to use something like ProSelect. So I can tell you firsthand, when we started using ProSelect about three, maybe four years ago, um, we went from an average of like $200 to 1200 instantly. Just wow. because... Wait, what say that again? Do? You went from what to what? Initially, we were doing like two, $300 sales for the few that we did online, if we could get them to buy online. Once we started doing ProSelect sales, we instantly jumped up to $1,200. What? Jeez. <laughs> okay. All right. Explain that. <laughs> why. Uh, we have a 110-inch HD projector, and what ProSelect will do is calibrate to your screen. You know, you set up, there's a little measuring tool that comes up and you measure it and you punch in the numbers. So when you're showing them these 60, 70, 80 inch images, you know, full HD and they go, oh, I just want a great big eight by 10. Oh, no problem. You actually show them an eight by 10 and it's a tiny little thumbnail on the screen because it's actual size projected. Uh, oh, I can't see their faces. Can you go a little bigger? You know, that's number one. So it helps bring the size up. But the bigger thing about it, uh, which we do all the time, is we have clients now take pictures with their smartphone of their wall where they're thinking about putting pictures. They put an 8 by 10 piece of paper up, send it to us right from their phone so there's no issue about downloading and converting smart cards or anything. Just email it right from your phone. That system, ProSelect, can calibrate that image, you know, the little paper, and then when they come in, we actually can show them their images on their own wall. Uh, most of the framing vendors out there now actually have frames that fall into ProSelect. Um, and my pick of the week actually is tied into ProSelect as well, which I'll mention. So let me, let me just let me just make sure I get that straight. So I'm your client and you say, you know what, what take a picture of the wall that you are considering putting images on. And, and send it to me. So I take a yeah. picture of the wall in my living room o- above my couch and I send you that image. You bring that into ProSelect and then it does some crazy math to figure out the dimensions and puts images on there. It's pre- Yeah, it's really pretty simple. You know, if there's something to measure, a wine bottle, a piece of paper that I know the size of that, we can measure that in the software and say, okay, that's six inches right there. Mm-hmm. Okay, that way it knows when we drop an eight by 10 on that wall, you know, composites right there live in the projection, they'll see exactly what size fits their wall in addition to making groupings. And we've had numerous clients where we just, you know, up the staircase and in the front hallway and on their sidewall, they can literally see their image as well as frames and pick out a frame and see it right there. That's crazy. So what are we looking at? So on, on, not to make this, you know, this week in ProSelect, but if if I wanted to get pros, like how am I look? How much am I looking at spending for this? Is this an investment or is this just a little piece of software that I buy and I'm good to go? I want to say because it's been a while. It was maybe six hundred dollars. Okay. And it and it's they they broke it up into three payments because we were just starting. So we're like, yeah, just give us oh, you know nice. month. So it was so say, it's kind of like Photoshop, but it pays for itself. I mean, if you if you made three if you were making three hundred dollars per sale and you made twelve hundred per sale after pro select then it'll pay for it on one client then right yeah absolutely wow okay interesting for them or anything i'm just telling you from a user standpoint right 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 no 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 that's cool all right 
Interesting. Very interesting. All right, let's move on to question number two. It's, he's, it, question number two is from Quint Lupton. He says, I have a question regarding upgrading to a full-frame DSLR. I currently own a Ken 40D and would describe myself as technically competent, as a technically competent advanced amateur with no real drive to go pro and no interest in video. My question is this. Why should I invest four figures in a 5D or 7D when I can get a used 1DS for under $1,000? From my standpoint, I get a slight increase in megapixels from the 40D, and what I have now is enough. Plus, I get all the toughness and weather sealing of the better camera. I even considered a 1D or 1D Mark II, but they both have a 1.3 crop factor. The 1DS is the cheapest full-frame Canon I can find. What are your thoughts? Let's throw it to you, De- Jeffrey, first. I mean, I know this is out of your comfort zone because you're used to like 700 megapixel images. <laughs> well, no, I still, uh, I certainly use the Canon system. Yeah. Um, I guess my first, if I could, were able to ask the uh, the listener, I would say, you know, why why does he want the uh, full frame DSLR? I know the reasons I would want it, but I guess I would assume he's either interested in in wide angle photography or um, maybe just likes the idea of the full frame. Maybe he's used to that. Uh, from shooting film, for instance, but looking at the, I don't remember offhand all the specs of the 1DS, but I would suggest that uh, if going to full frame, that you're probably going to get a lot more for your money, even if it's more than $1,000 buying, for instance, a 5D Mark II used than you would for a 1DS because of its, uh, the the Mark II known known for its, its much better ISO performance and high ISO performance. And um, I think it would be uh, more of a longer term solution for for the listener yeah. uh, versus buying the one DS, which which he may find it has shortcomings. Uh, certainly, a tank to carry around too. So there be some questions about what sort of work um, the listener would be doing uh, in terms of that. But I think the you know I think the five D Mark II is a wonderful camera. A lot of people do excellent work with it, and I can't imagine that on the used market it's much more than a thousand dollars. Anybody know what they're going for used? I don't know. I, I don't ask I mean, me. They were, <laughs> they were 2400 when they were new, right? So I sold my 1DS Mark III, so. Yeah, yeah. So Did I would suggest that. I would, I would look strongly at a, at a, 1D, uh, a, a 5D Mark II on the used market. Very cool. Valerie, what about you? Do you have anything to add to that? Well, if he's buying used, I would really you know, want to know where the camera's been and what the shutter actu- actuation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is on it because it could be at the end of its life, you know, too. So buying That's a really used- good point. That's a really good mm-hmm. point. If you're buying a mm-hmm. used camera, I mean, the first question that you should ask is how many shutter ac- actuations, I can't say that word either, actuations have taken place on that particular body, right? Yeah. And that's, it's just a fancy way of saying how many times has a shutter been used. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, they come with a – there is a limit. I mean, I'm sure that they go way beyond what the manual says right. they can go. But still, you know. But there's different, there's different levels, right? I mean, shutter actu- actuations in, you know, the middle of San Francisco on a beautiful sunny day versus in the middle of, you know, Iran in a dust storm or something. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's a different kind it was- yeah. Of mileage. If it's, been used, if it's been used by someone who's only shot, you know, multiple exposure due to HDR, you know, for the life of the camera, and then you get, you know, at least three actuations per picture, right? You know, that adds up. But yeah. anyhow, a lot of them are. It's a good point because a lot of the um, a lot of the shutters, the mechanical shutters, are rated in the, in the Pro series. You know, somewhere around one hundred and fifty thousand um, actuations, which sounds like a lot. But but to Valerie's point, if you're if you're doing 
digital photography in the first place, you tend to shoot a whole lot more. Yeah. So yeah. That, and that photographers, I mean, quick, it's like quickly. it's like photographers, like kids today, right? I mean, everyone's shooting on continuous high, and it's like you know, everyone's shooting with an Uzi instead of a sniper. Right? Mm-hmm. It's just like brrr, get. So I wonder, you know, I wonder what the average actuations today are versus what they were say 10 years ago it's got to be an insane graph i would love to see a graph of that canon nikon sony if you're listening you, you can get a 5d mark ii for about 1500 bucks used um okay. like so, a bnh yeah, thousand dollars so. off then yeah huh. and and i have a 5d mark ii and i love it and um so i that's what i would recommend too, is that what you're but, taking to paris with you tomorrow uh yes cool i'm taking a backup too but um, What's your backup? Um, actually, I have a couple, and I'll probably take the 50D. So there, there's 40D. The 50D was a really fine camera. So in case my 5D Mark II gets stolen or something, I'll have the 50D to shoot with, which yeah. is a big step. No uh, one steals anything in Paris. The what pessimistic are you about? photographer. <laughs> <laughs> Prepare. Yes. There's no but, theft in Paris. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the one I don't know the one DS, so I can't really comment. But um, cool. if he can, if he can add a, a few hundred dollars or wait and get a five D Mark II, even used, gently used, I would definitely go there. Yeah, or would should should uh, Quint Lip, Lupton go and get a mirrorless, like a Panasonic or an Olympus, and just you know be a nonconformist and go that route? Why not? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Be ahead of the, be ahead of the game. You know, maybe he has a whole bunch of lenses he wants to use, right. so he needs to stay in the Canon. That's a good question. Before we move on to the picks of the week, I want to ask this crowd, what, what do you guys think about this? So someone is new to photography. Say they haven't bought, you know, and there's millions of people like this out there that haven't bought their first professional gear yet and they're on the fence they're you know they're you remember you remember the phase when you're like scouring through the bnh catalog looking you know looking in the magazines to see what everybody's shooting with and trying to make the right decision about what to invest in for your first kit what 10 years ago that was the answer was different than it is today like where where would you i mean is it is the answer by an entry-level dslr or is the answer by a mirrorless camera I don't know, Dan. What, what would, if you were in that position, you know, today? You all your, mm-hmm. you know, say God forbid, all your stuff got stolen, right? And you had to start fresh with new gear, everything. What would you start with? That'd be great. I can go get a D four. I got everything insured. But <laughs> okay, and you have no insurance. See, <laughs> okay. No, what see, I, it's I'm, the Chicagoan in you coming out. Come on. Yeah, no. <laughs> for uh, for somebody new, a mirrorless versus versus not is not that's not going to matter. Um, if somebody was truly serious, I would just say, get a hold of it. Go down to a camera store, find the one guy that's not going to talk down to you and, you know, that really enjoys photography and will help you. And the other way, if you got a little money to spend, go to borrowlenses.com and rent something yeah. for a week. Or a hundred bucks for the week to rent any of the cameras you want and try it out. Yeah. Really get to know it. Rather than just shooting, you know, the cabinet at the photo store. Yeah. Yeah, that's the luxury we didn't have like like what 15 no. 20 years ago was to rent something, kick the tires on it. I wish you could do that for everything. Like I want to do that with like phones and cars and every, I mean you guys should do it with cars kind of. But, you know, just to get your hands on it for a, a reasonable amount of time to make sure it fits in with your life and then pull the trigger on it. You yeah. can totally do that with cars. Nothing to spend if you're going to spend, you know, invest 3 or 4000 dollars on a system. Yeah. Yeah. 
Jeffrey, what about you? I mean, if you if you had to start mm-hmm. from scratch today, even in your industry, I mean, you're in a high end industry, so the, the the rules and the rules of physics are a little bit different. But if mm-hmm. all your gear was gone, you woke up and you know, with some Stephen, you know, like what was it? Uh, who's the guy? What's the reference? The the writer that that wrote Christine, Stephen King. Uh- Oh, it's yeah. a Stephen sure. King. It's a Stephen King moment. You uh-huh. woke up and all your stuff is gone inexplicably. Inexplicably, I cannot talk today. <laughs> what would you do? Like, what would be the, your next move? What would you buy? How would you move forward? Well, I ask myself that question sometimes because I, I get um, people contacting me about the medium format and they're wondering, you know, should I go for medium format? What's the advantages over the DSLR? Yeah. And without getting into that whole debate, but I would. For me, I would stick with uh, medium format. But if it came down also to, like, say that just the Canon system was stolen, for instance, or my basically my, my secondary system, uh, and I often tell people this too, I think you have to look at where you're headed with your photography. Like, are you looking to use, because I'm not sure what sort of, um, for instance, what sort of flash systems are offered with the mirrorless systems or what, what range of lenses are, right. are offered. So I think, especially in the, in the DSLR market, you have to look at the whole system that's available for any, any given platform. So um, I've been happy with the, with the Canon system, and I'd probably stick with that as, as the secondary system. And I saw they have some new crazy 40-some megapixel camera being announced in a couple of weeks at Photo Plus. So you, um, you would replace what you have, basically. I would, yeah. I'm very happy with it. Um, I really um, I enjoy using it. And it's uh, something I mention to people a lot. For me, it's not even so much the specs of the camera and all. It's, it's about the process. Because mm-hmm. I, I started with uh, 4x5 film, which is a very slow, meticulous process. And that's mm-hmm. what got me into photography. And then I, um, I found when digital came along that I could work in a very similar way with the medium format system. And compared to buying and processing four by five film, it was actually cheaper per month to um, get into the medium format system. So, yeah. and I would still, I would still do that um, today, even though the megapixel race has definitely caught up with medium format on the DSLR side. Uh, but it's about m- much more than that. The, the process, the lenses, um, there's a lot of things to consider. Is there, but uh, Jeffrey, is there mm-hmm. such a thing? This is a, a ignorant sort of outside of the uh, industry of your industry question. Is there such a thing as an eight by 10 digital back? There is actually, it's funny. There's a guy and I can't remember his name. I'll see if I can send you a link to it. He made his own. I think he made two of them. Um, it was actually a, some sort of an eight by 10, um, digital sensor, Jeez. certainly ridiculous. Uh, he, he invested in this project himself and I'll see if I can find it. It was What, linked what was he shooting with that? Like, you know, the landscape, different stuff. galaxies and that kind, yeah. of <laughs> it's kind of, I think it was a fine art. It's now on the Mars rover. Yeah. Yeah. yeah maybe. But, um, but otherwise no, no, commercially available. No, there's, there's nothing like that. The closest thing was in four, it was in four by five with a, a scanning back. Uh, which is basically a, a single row CCD that would that would scan across the the I guess the five inches it was four inches and the only trouble with that was uh, and you couldn't have anything that was in in motion right right because right. not only was it scanning uh, across it once but um, if you wanted the highest quality file it would actually scan across four times um, so you would get if you had even you know moving trees trying to shoot landscape they would be out of register yeah wow. So, uh, that's yeah. crazy. You gotta love this stuff. This stuff is—it's always changing, is always growing, is always something new to like, you know, lust after lust, lust after is being inaccessible and uh, beyond your range of being able to buy. Sure. <laughs> like four by five cameras, for example. You know, it's like oh, jeez. What are, what do those run, by the way, Jeffrey? Before we move uh, on, four by five camera. Yeah, like a back, a four by five back for oh, the back. Yeah. Um, well, the. 
the one I'm using when it was new, the, the P45 Plus, uh, retailed with a warranty for 33000 And the new, the, the one, the IQ160, which is the, the middle range one, which is the one I was considering, is I think somewhere around 42000 um, but they also offer a wonderful trade. You actually get whatever megapixels you have in your existing back they give you. So I would get 39% off of the new back based on my 39 megapixel P45 Plus as a trade-in. So that's, that's not a bad deal because I've had that back for almost five years. Wow. That's great. Yeah, so you buy it. It's almost like a lens, right? You buy it and, yeah. and just use the heck out of it. I'm sure it's paid for itself, right? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, you really have to look at it from the business side of it and see what – and, you know – you have to charge an appropriate amount for post-production. The architectural work, there's a lot of time spent in post-production. So the fees for the post-production are, are enough to, to, to make it viable. Cool. So, yeah, it's all those considerations. You know. All right. All right. We're, uh, we're, we've got the landing gear down on the show. It is uh, time to come in for a landing. It's time for the picks of the week. Um, let's start with Valerie. Valerie, this is the picks of the week. What, your pick can be anything as long as it's somehow related to photography. What are you and picking? That's an this e-book. Week? An ebook, um, awesome. Yes, is it free? My uh, no, but it's it's quite it's a big ebook. Uh, it's uh, my my friend uh, James Mayer from New York is a street photographer. Uh, put a lot of thought and work in this ebook about uh, street photography. It's called The Essentials of Street Photography, and it's um, it's not a book a technical book about photography. It's how to approach street photography i mean it goes from you know the fear of of photographing strangers in the street to you know um mm. different techniques and so forth it's it's 140 page which is pretty thick for an ebook and as a bonus you also get a, a second book which is a street photography conversations where he interviewed jamie zell um oh, uh, Dave man. Beckerman. and Dave so it's 1995 We'll put the link. That's nothing. Uh, That's awesome. And and it has so many of his street uh, photography uh, images as examples and stuff. It's 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 wonderful. What a good idea. What a good idea. Cool. Cool. All right. I'm gonna I'm buying that tonight. I'm (laughs) buying it right now. (laughs) You're buying it right now? (laughs) See, I have to run the show, so I can't buy it right now. I'm gonna buy it after the show's over. (laughs) Cool. All right, we'll definitely check that out. And uh, what's what's the title of the book again? The Essentials of Street Photography? Correct. Okay, and that Mayer. and you can only buy it from the site. Can you you can you not buy that on iTunes or anything like that? Um, I don't. Think we'll have to so. check. If not, I would I would suggest listeners buy it from his site anyway because he'll get more money regardless. <laughs> you know, support the artist. Support the artist. That's right. All right, Dan Ablin, what is your pick of the week? Yeah, um, and this is something that works inside ProSelect. Uh, so any photographers that are doing holiday cards and some prints and collages and things and need some good templates for their clients, um, and I know I know Charmaine personally, so this is her studio up in Wisconsin, Check Art Studio, C H E C K. Uh, we got the link up there, CheckArtStudio.com. Just some amazing templates she does; are very affordable. Uh, some nice collections. Plus, there's a create your own. So, if you want, we just we just bought ten of them today, and um, they come now with pro select templates. So, what that means is, when your client comes in for the review and you show them all their portraits, you can then also put the Christmas card up on the screen or holiday card and drop the image inside there. So, they'll actually see on your projection screen through pro select what their pictures look like inside these cards. Nice. But you don't have to have ProSelect. That's just a bonus. You know, they're, they're just Photoshop templates. Nice. 
And if I'm looking at the site now, they've got video tutorials. I love that. That's that's one thing I look for when I look at sites these days, whether it's for an app or whatever. You know, if they've got video tutorials, because I'm lazy now. You know, as I get older, I get lazier. And I'm like, <laughs> I want you just show me what it is that I'm considering buying, and then I'll make the purchase decision. You know. Yeah, and and how to use it, you know, because a lot of people buy them and they don't know how to update the fonts or use the layer masks or anything like that. So it shows you how to do that. Love it. Very cool. That's Check Art Studio. Very cool. Hey, now, Dan, I was going to ask you before we move on um, to Jeffrey's pick of the week. In So you're using ProSelect for your proofing and all that sort of thing. Yeah. We've been on This Week in Photo on the blog and on the podcast. We've been over the last couple of weeks, we were talking about sort of the options for photographers you know because smug it was triggered by smug mugs price increase so they increased their prices by 50 percent mm-hmm. um what are you using and what would you suggest to photographers to use as their sort of you know proofing solution online should they and and what do you use and what do you suggest to photographers to use the only time we use um online proofing is for corporate headshots mm. and um everything else is done in studio with pro select so, so you don't do the online – you're not like, okay, here's a username, password. Go look at your stuff and you know maybe no. hopefully place an order and you, you, no. you go home and pray, right? You, you sell them in the studio. Yeah, aside from us truly being able to help our clients and, and pick out what they want for their walls and help them arrange and really answer questions because they don't know what they want sometimes, um, aside from all of that – you lose that emotion. You lose that, you know, we, when they come in through ProSelect, we show a slideshow and we have music and, you know, it's a very nice, dedicated room. It's very cozy. You know, that, that's all part of the experience yeah. that we do at the studio. You don't get that when the kids are screaming and you're trying to look at this on a laptop at home in the kitchen and, you know, to see your pictures. You know, it's um, – so that has a lot to do with, with, with showing it. So. Dan, can I make a suggestion for your yeah. – for I don't know if this is a Linda title or if this is a sell it on your own title – I would love a title on how to sell, you know, like all like everything with pro select in there and, you know, how what words do you use with the clients? You know, just the whole flow from their parking to they come in (laughs) to they're leaving and you have their money, you know, (laughs) you need to demystify that. Yeah, The responsibility falls on you. I mean, I would love I'd be more than happy to. I mean, we're not we're not selling gangbusters, but um, but you know the flow. You've been doing it for years. So you're an expert. You know how to do do this. All right. All right. Just start telling put it out there. We'll we'll make it happen. All right. Cool. All right. Well, we got to talk. Definitely. All right, cool. All right, next up is Jeffrey. Jeffrey, what is your pick of the week? I don't think I mentioned these before. I've, um, I've been using for the last year or so uh, some new strobe lighting. I was using Dynalite uh, in the past, which is the traditional pack, separate pack and head setup. I had a bunch of those. Um, and after we did the um, the POTUS workshop with Phase One, mm-hmm. uh, working with my colleague uh, Chris Barrett from Chicago, another architectural photographer, he turned me on to the Profoto D1 strobes. And these are... Um, these are uh, monoblock heads, meaning mm. that the pack is uh, built into the head. It's one unit. Uh, it's much faster to set up. But I never went with the uh, with the monoblocks in the past because the sort of work I do, you know, you're likely to get a strobe head way above your above your head or in some um, difficult position. And in order to change the power, you'd have to pull it down, lower the stand, or move it to change the power to get to the back of the head. But the Profoto system has a um, 
a remote system called their air system. And it actually also works directly out of capture one, hmm. uh, which is the software you shoot to when I'm shooting tethered and just with a, a, a simple $500 dongle. Um, but it does work really well. So you can actually control the, the heads, turn them on and off, turn on the model eights, uh, and change the power right from the laptop. So they're, they're really simple to use very quick to set up. I use the thousand watt second versions. Um, what are, what six, are we looking at price wise on these things? Uh, they're, they're not cheap. They're, um, about $1,800 each. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can also buy them in kits of two that include, but stands, you buy them umbrellas. once. I mean, the, the saving grace of that is not, this is not like, okay, I got to buy these every three months or upgrade them or whatever. Right. You buy these once. And if you treat them right, you're going to use them for, you know, pretty much a large percentage of your career. Right. Absolutely. I had the, um, and quite honestly, there was nothing wrong with the Dynalites. Uh, except that they just took a little longer to set up than this mono, mono head system. So the Dynalite served me well for 10 years, never, never even lost a flash tube on that system. Wow. Uh, and the pro photos are built, built very well. So, uh, but you can also buy them in kits. They sell them in kits of two heads with umbrellas and stands in a case for something like $3,000. Yeah, uh, and then what I did is I bought the kits and I didn't need the stands or the umbrellas or the case. So, um, I just put up on eBay um, all of those things and sold that separately. So for I got like another two hundred fifty dollars back. Nice. So, nice. so yeah, so I got two heads for you know twenty five. I got to get back into B- eBay. My brother has been bragging about all the stuff he's selling on eBay, and I've got all this junk around. That house. Yeah, it works <laughs> like every now and then, like every like it seems like every week I get a text from him saying, "Hey, I sold my like five year old iPhone for seven hundred dollars on eBay." Uh-huh. <laughs> so I need to uh, I need to look into that. I wanted to add one other thing because that, that's sure. certainly the, the the one end, the the, the high end, the, the powerful end of the of the strobe world. Um, but also another very simple device I use uh, that's also a strobe are these. Um, I, uh, I call them screw-ins. I think that's the official word for them. They're made by the Morris Company, and they're small um, slave-triggered optical slave-triggered strobes. That, uh, for instance, if you're shooting somebody's kitchen. Um, like I often find myself doing, and they have um, recessed lights in the ceiling. You can just unscrew the floodlights from the from the ceiling and screw these strobes right in, and they're powered by the light socket, and then they fire when your other strobes fire. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, they're great. They're not oh, very expensive. $30, 30 that or $50. Is, now, that's cool. Really? Yeah, they're really, yeah. really neat. And they're great because then you're not – because a lot of times you might be shooting a kitchen in daylight, for instance, uh, yeah. during the day, and you have um, a lot of daylight coming in. Maybe you're adding strobe, which is also daylight, but then you have these incandescent light bulbs in the ceiling that are kind of contaminating everything from a color perspective. So it's great. You can you can just make everything um, everything daylight. Uh, and they're, they're you have to control them a little bit sometimes. So I have a couple ones that are, that are smaller so that they don't stick down out of the socket because some of them stick down a little too low. But – uh, but they're a, a great uh, solution for a little extra extra punch of light somewhere where you can't really get one of your lights, but there's already a, a ceiling light, for instance. And Morris so, Morris has been around for like thirty years plus, oh, right? Yeah. I mean, forever. Yeah, they were these these guys were really popular in the film days because it was much harder to get a light where you really needed it in the film days because mm-hmm. you could only light things from the edges. You know, now right. it's easier to put even a huge strobe and softbox halfway into your shot because you can take it out. Um, but they all, they make all kinds of different things, little tiny. Ones you can stick behind a book on a bookshelf somewhere. I have some of those. I have like five yeah. or six of those little tiny Morris strobes that have the built-in slaves in them, and you put a, some like AAA batteries in them. Yep. And you hide them in behind you hide them behind books, and it's just like that extra little pop of light. It's yeah, they, awesome. they work really well. 
Yeah. So I've I've always carried around a few of those. I got some more recently for a shooting for a paint company, and the color had to be absolutely consistent. So yeah. we made sure we use those. You know what the problem is the problem with the Morrises and, and the reason why they stay in that little bag. <laughs> well, I can't mm-hmm. use them now um, because I'm I'm a Nikon shooter and I use the Nikon CLS system, which is not compatible with with optical like slaves like this because they send the pulses of light to trigger the lights out there, you know. But once you once any any strobe fires, it'll fire these. Right, but I'm saying the the, the Nikon CLS system sends pulses of light to trigger the strobes. So the strobes know, okay, let me it's like Morse code. So they'll send like Morse code with flashes instantly before the actual flash goes off and those little morse code flashes trigger the morse lights so those go off uh, first and then the regular the regular lights go off you know later so you you never get those in the in the uh frame so that's that's the problem with those unless you just go full manual and then you know then it's all good then you lose the cls and all that so anyway cool all right so morris screw in 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 strobes we'll uh put that mm-hmm. in the uh, show notes all right, and my quick pick of the week is a site called Shopify, and I am familiar with them because I'm building a little store for This Week in Photo over the oh, next couple uh, of weeks that is going to have some, you know, things that we talk about on the site in there and some uh, T-shirts and other things that hopefully our listeners will purchase to support the show and help us stay on the air because <laughs> it's not cheap to stay on the air. So we're building a little Shopify store for listener support of the show so that we don't, you know, go away. And uh, But I was really impressed by Shopify. So if you go to Shopify.com and check them out, I learned about them from my last pick of the week, which was Mixergy.com, Andrew Warner's site, who does all these cool interviews with C- with like startups and CEOs and all this cool stuff. So Mixergy.com, definitely check them out if you are at all interested in business and marketing and that sort of thing. But one of the things that he talks about on there was Shopify. And Shopify is just this kind of turnkey site where you can build a really crazy cool store that works perfectly on the web, on iPads, iPhones, Androids, all that stuff. And you can get it done in like, you know, a couple hours and you got to store up. Whereas like three years ago it was like, okay, I have to hire a e-commerce consultant to help me get my and, site and going. Remember that? I want to comment on that too, Frederick. Yeah, go my, ahead. Um, our training site, our training division is 3dgarage.com. Mm-hmm. And we've gone through ASP.net and all kinds of storefronts over the years. And about a year and a half ago, we got a Shopify site. And that's what we use today for 3dgarage.com. And nice. tons of great plugins. Um, we use Mad Mimi for email, for contacts. You know, some people have constant contact. They have plugins that link between the two. Uh, plugins for downloads for those people that, like I just bought that book that Valerie mentioned, and it came through eJunkie. Yeah. Um, they have their own thing called Fetch that I use. Uh, so all these great little plugins for Shopify. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I love it. I love it. Yeah, and I'm looking at their site now. They're focused in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Fast Company, Mashable, TechCrunch, and Entrepreneur Magazine. So, you know, I mean, if all those guys say they're good, they must be good. <laughs> so, anyway, that's that's what I'm going to use to power the store for this week in photo. Um, so definitely check them out. We don't have any affiliate agreement or anything with them. I'm just saying that because that's what's top of mind. Okay. Uh, oh, one other thing that's top of mind, by the way, this is October, and I just got an email a couple days ago from the folks over at Outdoor Photography Magazine. This Week in Photo is featured in Outdoor Photo Magazine, nice. Outdoor Photography cool. Magazine. So 
I think we're real. It, that, that means we're real if we're in print. Right. <laughs> we're not just bits, you know. We're actually on the printed page on newsstand somewhere. So, yeah, definitely check out that that uh, check out that magazine and uh, let us know what you think. Comment on this episode and let us know that you saw it. All right, we are at the end of another episode of this week in photo. Let's uh, let's find out where we can go to stay connected to everybody. Valerie, what's up with you? Where can people go to find out more about you? Uh, my website will have all the information. Um, ValerieJardinPhotography.com. dot com. It's V A L E R I E J A R D I N Photography, all in one word. Perfect. All right, we'll direct people over there. And Jeffrey, where can people go to uh, keep in touch with you? Uh, my website certainly the best uh, for that. And uh, thanks to this opportunity to be on the show, I actually uh, spent most of the day updating the website. So it's fresh. And it's uh, jeffreytotaro.com. And it's Jeffrey with an R E Y, uh, Totaro, T O T A R O. And I'm also on Twitter at, uh, at Jeffrey Totaro. So hope to see you there. All right, cool. All right. And Dan Ablin, where can people go to uh, check you out? Uh, about.me slash Dan Ablin, D-A-N-A-B-L-A-N, and that links to Ablin Gallery, our photography studio, AGA Digital, which is a brand new site I finished this week using Adobe Muse. Oh. Um, what what, what give, is that? Don't tease. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> that is part of the Adobe suite, and a lot of people don't seem to like it, but I actually uh, I've, I found it quite nice. And What does it do? I mean, I, I haven't, I'm sure I have web, it, but I haven't used it. It's a web builder. Uh, I think it's HTML5. I don't know. I just, is, that the, <laughs> is that the thing that you can give a layered Photoshop document to and it'll spit out HTML at the other end? Yeah, maybe. I didn't get that far with it, but we rebuilt the uh, entire AJ Digital site for 3D and main company. Yeah. Uh, and the advantage is that it's identical on iPads and iPhones and web and everything else, which yeah, is what we want to do. Hmm. Yeah. Very cool. All right. All right. Thanks, Dan. All right. And to keep up with everything in the TWIP universe, you can check us out at thisweekinphoto.com. Also, please support the show by leaving us a comment in iTunes. We read each and every one of those comments, so please be nice because we're going to read those. Also, be sure to check out the TWIP podcast app. It's a handy way to stay on top of our newest shows and also to go back and listen to our greatest hits, some of the older shows because they're chock full of goodness and finally if you're looking for me frederick van johnson you can find me at frederickvan.com and with that it is time to take that lens cap off This Week in Photo is a Pixelcore.tv production, produced by Suzanne Llewellyn, with technical producers John Riley and Alutha Jamakar.